To say that something is real is to say that it doesn't change in time, that it's permanent in time. So the idea that the self is an illusion, what is meant by that claim is it's not permanent in time. Anand Vaidya is a professor at San Jose State University and focuses his research on areas where analytic philosophy meets Indian philosophy. Today we discuss several topics, one of them being modal epistemology. Epistemology is justified belief or the study of knowledge. And modal epistemology is the possibility and necessity of such knowledge. Sometimes people reference possible worlds in this discussion, yet Anand's research indicates that if we rely solely on Lewisian semantics for such discourse, well, it can be limiting. In other words, what do non-Lewisian modal semantics, as seen in some Indian philosophical traditions, bring to the table? The point of Toe is not to cover people who are guaranteed views because of their large name, but rather to unearth to the public hidden gems like Michael Levin or Gregory Chaitin. That is, these titans in the academic world, but little known outside it. It reminds me of a comedian Patrice O'Neill or an early Larry David say in the 80s, names that comics knew and respected, but not much of the public knew about. Anand is one such individual. So many times in this conversation, I was in awe with Anand's ability to cite such a variety of sources and such a disparity of concepts, weaving them together with dexterity and inventiveness. Anand is someone who will become a staple on toe. The notion of phenomenal consciousness is dominant in contemporary Western philosophy, but Indian traditions introduce us to reflexive awareness. So that is perceiving stimulus versus inward looking understanding. We talk about this distinction and several more, including dispelling myths about Vedic philosophy and religion. We talk about philosophy of language. We talk about consciousness. We talk about AI, talk about free will, talk about math. We talk about God. We talk about morality. We talk about virtually every subject that we talk about on different episodes of the podcast but all together in one i don't think that's ever happened before this is one for the books and i'm so excited for you all to hear this or watch it i almost forgot if you're new to this channel my name is kurt jaimungle and this is a podcast called theories of everything where we explore different toes different theories of everything primarily from a mathematics physics perspective but as well as taking a philosophical one and attempting to understand the role consciousness has in constitutive law or emergent law you should also know that every single book every single article Every video, everything that's been mentioned will be in the description and this is standard in every single Toe podcast. We meticulously take timestamps and we meticulously take show notes. Enjoy this podcast with Anand Vaidya. Welcome, Professor. It's an honor to speak with you again. We met about seven months ago. This has been quite a while in the making. Yep. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, I'm really happy to be here. All right. What are you working on these days and what excites you about it? So currently, I am enjoying a sabbatical, which I had academics, you know, pretty much like because they get some time off to do their own research. So I've been away for six months from the U.S., traveling all over Europe, and I'll eventually be going to Hong Kong and India. And I'm working on basically two projects. The main project for my sabbatical is an investigation of classical Indian theories of knowledge, in particular perception, and how they relate to 20th century analytic philosophy debates about perception. So the book is currently titled On Certification, and it's a development and engagement with the 14th century Navyanyaya thinker Gungesha, and how his research uh, is important for looking at contemporary debates in the 20th century between top figures in epistemology, such as Tyler Burge, John McDowell, Timothy Williamson, Christopher Peacock, um, people like that. So basically the goal is to sort of 
show people how doing cross-cultural philosophy across Indian philosophy and analytic philosophy leads to a very engaging conversation where we get to see similar ideas discussed in a different way and different ideas brought to bear on things we thought they wouldn't be brought to bear if mm-hmm. we just came from one frame. So that's the substantive project which I'm working on. And I've been working on those ideas for over a decade, traveling back from India to the United States every year to work with people in various parts of um, India and in research institutions in America as well. Uh, then the other project I'm working on is kind of a separate interest that uh, led to how we met each other, actually. It was Susan Schneider at MindFest who sort of invited me to come out and talk about consciousness in Indian philosophy and, and in particular Jain philosophy. But I had reached out to her to talk to her because I'd been working on this crazy idea that machines can have emotions and it's obvious how machines can have emotions and everybody's just simply like forgotten that there was this theory that if we explored in more detail and developed, it would lead to a substantive argument for why machines can have emotions. So I've now developed that uh, research in detail and I'll be going to Hong Kong in November to uh, present my research to an AI group there. And in relationship to that, the side project is that I'm trying to give an account of why we should think of artificial intelligences, large language models, machines in general of a certain kind I can define as having some kind of moral standing independently of the fact uh, that they're sentient. So I, I try to approach the issue of moral standing by avoiding the issue of discussing sentience, and I instead focus on other properties that are relevant for moral grounding, and I've been working on this view also for two years. So these are the kinds of things that actually Susan and I were talking about when we met, and then I also explained to her about the Indian philosophy stuff, and she liked that, and so I came out, and that's how we met, Kurt. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah, so those, so, so those are all going on right now. Project on Indian epistemology and analytic epistemology, and sort of this deep kind of like side project that I just like a pure passion project where I just really want to get it out there about this thing about machine emotions and moral standing in artificial systems that doesn't depend on the standard criteria of sentience. So machines can have moral standing independent of if they can feel and if they can feel is a synonym for sentience? I think for me, sentience is not actually a very useful term. There are two fundamental terms that I think are more useful. It's the distinction between affective and phenomenal consciousness. I typically take it that when people are discussing sentience, for example, people like Peter Singer, that it's kind of the same as just the notion of affective um, consciousness. So yes, my view is that um, it's kind of interesting because I'm saying machines can have emotions, but they don't have affective consciousness in terms of feelings, but they still have moral standing. And so when you say that, people are like, wow, that's kind of not the result I would think someone could come up with, but that's kind of what I'm working on. What's the difference between affective and phenomenal consciousness? Oh, so typically what we say is that the phenomenal consciousness has to pertain to there being a subjective what it's like aspect to the experience. The most common way of explaining this is through contrast. So there's something it's like to see red that's different from what it's like to see green. There's something it's like to hear F minor versus it is to hear G minor. So those contrasts give us this sort of like there's something it's like. And then affective consciousness is typically argued to be when we have phenomenal consciousness plus what's known as hedonic tone. So there's some kind of pleasure or pain Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is related to the actual what it's like experience. So in some sense, if you think affective consciousness can occur, 
you think that almost every phenomenal state, if not all of them, has some sort of hedonic tone to it. So this is the question of separability. Can there really be what it's like to experience red without any sort of hedonic tone whatsoever? Is it really, is it possible that that could happen? So one view says, yes, this is the view that David Chalmers has argued for in his book, Reality Plus. And there's other people who say no, like some Buddhist philosophers would say, no, every sort of what it's like correlates with some amount of hedonic tone in it. Right. And so, that, uh, so that's the difference between the two definitions. I would have thought that it would be the opposite, where Indian philosophers would say, no, you can have phenomenal consciousness without hedonic tone, because you can get to states of feeling like nothingness except maybe quote-unquote being but that's not okay. the same no, as no, being pleasure. I, I, I don't think I don't think that um so that's very uh insightful and I think that's correct. So I think maybe I misspoke. I just meant to say that there are some Indian schools. I see. Okay. A specific Buddhist school that ha- would I think it's the Abhidharma school to be more specific that actually has written about the relationship between affective states and phenomenal states. So I might be incorrect in labeling Abhidharma or Buddhism, but in general, there are some schools, I think, that will say that there's a one-to-one relationship between that. And um, there are other ones that might say it is possible to be in a full-blown phenomenal state without any affective tone. Um, I can even think of some examples and reasons why, but, but you're correct. I think it's important just to stay clear with the fact that there are roughly nine, if not up to 28, identified schools of Indian philosophy. Mm. So I tend to like try to be a little bit more than generalizing. Yeah. Now to be a bit more pedantic, use the word one-to-one. And so both you and I, we have training in math, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, mathematical logic for me, particularly, that's my main area. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So when we say one-to-one, did you mean to say that there are some schools of Eastern thinking or Indian thinking that in this hedonic tone, firstly, let's just imagine it as one dimensional and pain is here and pleasures, even if that's false, just Mm -hmm. for the sake of this, that Mm -hmm. red gives you five units of pleasure. Okay. So that's one way we can have the map. But further, if I was to say to you, you have experienced something that gave you five units of pleasure, you can then infer that it was red. Oh, no, right. That's, that's, I get what you're saying. Yeah. No, I don't mean to use the notion of a bijection between two sets. Right. So that's right. There's a surjection and there's an, yeah, that's a surjection and injection. And that would be a bijection. And that's usually, that's called one-to-one and onto, right? So that's all right. So you were using the injective notion. Uh, That's correct. No, um, that's actually, that's a very interesting thesis, Kurt. I never thought about the one where you would infer from the quantity of the hedonic tone that it must have been in this range of phenomenal experiences that's a very interesting thesis but it'd but be a the, very the difficult one, that one I was, to make it, it, i think it would be hard to establish in that you have to yeah. be super discerning yeah but i think the the more general one is that the, that i'm going for is that phenomenal states have hedonic character as part of them it's never really that you're Forget about if it's positive for me with red and negative for you. It's never that you're experiencing something that it's like without any bit of hedonic tone one way or another. That's the one I recall certain Buddhist schools questioning mm. that whether or not you could just have this pure what it's like without any um, hedonic tone. But as David in his book nicely gives an example of, he wants to say just as he created the notion of a philosophical zombie – 
a character that's physical duplicate of any given human being but lacks phenomenal consciousness, there are um, philosophical Vulcans, creatures which are physical duplicates of Vulcans in the sense of physical duplicates of humans in a certain sense, but they lack all affective states, right? So they have phenomenal consciousness, but no affect. So obviously, it's not really good to think of Spock this way, I would think, because of the character and the way he plays out in Star Trek mm, or even okay. Data. But, but the idea is to create a kind of thought experiment in which we can explore the idea of some kind of hedonic neutrality in our experience, but there's still something that's like, right? I think one way you can also come to see this, if you want to see it more in terms of... Um, neuroscience or psychology is by thinking about the already well-known phenomenon of pain asymbolia, where a person doesn't have the ability to have rich phenomenology for pain sensation, right? In such a case, I mean, you might think, oh, I could find a way to imagine from this actual case, someone for which certain phenomenal states they have don't have any tone to them, positive or negative, because the person has pain asymbolia. I mean, there's obviously a couple of steps more that are required there, that when you have pain asymbolia, it correlates with some other inability to have hedonic tone in some way. But there's a way to sort of start to think and reason that a creature could be constructed in such a way. Uh-huh. Now, this hedonic tone, if I'm saying that correctly, the positive side is pleasure and negative side is pain. Is it as simple as like that one-dimensional case? Or can it be that certain types of pain are more pleasurable. Mm. Can you clarify that? So, for instance, there's some people who... Algolagnia. Okay, okay. You get sexual gratification from inflicting or experiencing pain. And then there's the Dostoevskian quote, which says, I've only in my life carried to an extreme what you haven't dared carry even halfway. And what's more, you found comfort in deceiving yourself and mistaking your cowardice for good sense. Perhaps after all, there's more more life in me than in you and something along the lines of just a moment oh yeah, yeah, yeah resentment why does purification a most stinging and painful consciousness the feeling of insult will elevate and purify the soul so i ask you which is better exalted sufferings or cheap happiness so in other words pain to him in some cases in some characters can be more pure than general positive affect and this pureness okay. is somehow more pleasurable yeah, or more I think worthy. That, yeah. So I was going to say that it sounded to me like um, there are two ways you can analyze this sort of Dostoevskian phenomenon. One of them would be to say that the value metric associated with the affect being positive or negative can pull in the opposing direction. So that sufferings, which have a negative hedonic tone, can sometimes have a higher value. And in virtue of the anticipated higher value or knowledge of the higher value, the subject can have a sort of an emergent phenomenon of pleasure on top of the suffering. I'll give you a really, really odd example, but maybe this is correct. I mean, I used to lift weights a lot. And sometimes when you're in the weight room and you're doing what's called like a maximum press for the, for the week, like you're trying mm-hmm. to test what you, what's your maximum bench press? Like, I mean, it can be, it's pretty painful. Like, but there's like this moment when you feel like, oh, I might actually, you know, hit 225 today, you know? Uh, and you, so I don't know if that's the exact, I don't know. It doesn't seem like what Dustin is talking. 
<laughs> no, that was a long time ago. Thanks. But um, yeah, I, I think um, there is something related to that. And in the opposite direction, I think that the sort of like, you know, low and the, 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 the fleetingness of the spike in the high um, hedonic tone of pleasure can be fleeting in a way where the value, same value metric would say it's not. A, and, and we should make this clear. Like, you know, although we started with me talking about some stuff about Buddhism, I mean, Jeremy Bentham had a rich theory of pain and pleasure in relationship to value in his utilitarian calculus, which Mill eventually developed in more detail. But the other thing I would say that's really interesting here is there was a, a period of time where one of the big debates was concerned about two theses. One thesis was known as the distinction between higher and lower pleasures, right? So that there were certain kinds of pleasures, such as reading Dostoevsky over drinking 50 beers, which just intrinsically in virtue of what it is, was just a higher pleasure. And there was no way to say if you drank 100,000 beers, that would be the same as reading Crime and Punishment, right? Okay, so, so, so then there's this question about what is the theoretical way to make sense of that sort of the, the, the fact that they seem to be both pleasures, but there is no quantitative basis in which one can equal the other in any way. That became a, a complicated question in utilitarianism. Then the other one was related to the scale you mentioned. It was about the fact, so not the fact, the question of whether or not the scale is one-dimensional with going increasing in one direction and decreasing, or whether or not there are two different things. So at one period in time, there was a notion of a hedon and a dolor, okay? So a dolor was a unit of negative, uh, uh, like pain. And a hedon was a positive thing. And they didn't have to be on the same scale. Then the other view <laughs> was kind of like the way in which we say, there really isn't cold, it's just the absence of heat, right? There really isn't pain, there's just the absence of pleasure, right? Or there isn't really pleasure, there's just the absence of a certain degree of pain, right? So this understanding of light and darkness uh, hot and cold, and also pain and pleasure at one period in time was something that was discussed within utilitarian philosophy in terms of its ethical theory and how calculations were supposed to be done. I haven't kept up personally with this literature for a long time, but but you're, some of the questions you're asking are interestingly exploring that that important area of these theories. You mentioned up and down or hot and cold or good and bad, pleasurable and pain. And there are some schools, well, some major schools of Indian thought that suggest that that's some illusion. So can you please explore that and the quote that I gave you via email of David mm -hmm. Loy, who delineated different types of non-dualism? And I know you said you weren't able to get the source of that. Neither was I. I don't know where I copied that down from. Mm -hmm. However, some commenters suggested that, no, multiple of these are the same. Like, if you do not have that distinction between subject and object, then that is the same as unity with God. It's probably useful for me to delineate what I meant. I had written down these notes on non-dualism from what David Loy had suggested, that there are five different attributes of them. So number one, monism, that all separate objects are indeed of one vellum. Number two, advaita, the subject and object are the same. Number three, no negation or non-negation. That is, one isn't supposed to think in terms of good, bad, up, down, or any pair of opposites, but rather that they're supposed to quote-unquote transcend the pair. Number four is advaya, that is that there's no difference between the relative and absolute truths as defined in Zen and other Buddhist-inspired traditions. And number five, mysticism, in other words, unity with God. 
Often we think of non-dualism as being the same, but there are different sects that do not see overlap and in fact will accept two or even one and reject the others. Anand Vaidya also talks more about this in his solo talk on Theories of Everything, which is linked in the description on going beyond non-dualism in the Indian tradition. Something to note is that the Zoom call of Anand was out of sync with mine, and so there were quite a few overlaps where I wasn't sure if he was done speaking, so I interjected and he did the same for me, and it sounds like we're interrupting one another, but that's merely due to that pesky technology called the internet. Okay, okay, so um, it might be useful because that information isn't available to everyone right this moment, that I just draw a distinction at the outset that can help clarify some of the issues in the taxonomy that he offered. So, 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 so the distinction I would say is helpful in the beginning to start thinking about duality. Is duality due to language or conceptualization in the human mind and duality that is in nature, right? So, Mm. I, I so the reason why I think like this is because uh, so the, the reason why I think this is useful is because it, it is part of the argumentation of even some of these Indian traditions as well as Western traditions to think that what's going on is that the mind is operating by creating dualities and that it's imposing those dualities on things which may or may not be dualistic in themselves. So we can think about a transparency thesis and an opacity thesis. And I'm using these terms generically, not in terms of how they're defined in the philosophy of language. So a transparency thesis would tell us something like, when we apply a duality such as good and bad, that duality is actually transparent to the fact that there are goods and bads in nature itself. And an opacity thesis would say something like, the fact that we conceptualize something in terms of hot and cold doesn't mean that in nature there's both hot and cold. Because as we already know, it's just the absence of kinetic energy in one direction, right? So we can, and then we can complexify things by saying the global version is that it's all like the hot-cold case, right? We're, it's all opaque, like we're, we're doing this all. And then we can have the moderate case, which says, no, actually, sometimes when we are Using dualities, there's a duality in nature. It's not just a function of our language. Mm, we okay. are getting it. And then there's the further one, which probably is the least plausible of all of them, is that all the dualities that we create are real to some degree. It's just a matter of figuring out what is the level of reality. So that one depends on a levels-based theory of reality as well as the fact that we can't really be getting things wrong when we create dualities. Our mind doesn't impute things in such a horrible way that it distorts things. There must be something out there that it's capturing, even if we're misdescribing the duality. So, for example, it could say, in the hot and cold case, what's going on is that we thought that there was two underlying phenomena, but we found that there was one underlying phenomenon, but then our distinction just is mapping different uh, gradients on mm-hmm. that one line, but it's still mapping something. It's not mapping the fundamental thing. So we, we were mistaken, but so those are the three different ways I would say you can think about this general distinction about the language, sort of dualism caused by language or concept use. And then let's go to the other side now, dualism in nature. Like So someone like Descartes, who's classically identified as a dualist, I'd be hard-pressed to think that anything he said has to do with 
the fact that he, you know, spoke multiple languages and read in those languages, <laughs> he's not making a linguistic thesis. He's making mm. a claim about the fundamental nature of reality in terms of the essential properties and arguments that are telling us that what is going on in one case is that you have a substance that's identified by the essential property of rage causitas thinking, and another one that's identified by the fundamental property of extension, which is then given also the idea that it can be infinitely divisible. And those divisions are something that pertain to it, but doesn't pertain to thought. And so he's not telling us something about language as much. I mean, I'm sure there's some critics who think that there's a linguistic background to the way in which he comes to it, but I don't think his thesis is about language as much as this is about the way the world is. Now, if we take this into opposition with some Buddhist schools, they would pretty much be saying, oh, these things are basically, we're creating dualisms based on our language, basically. What comes out as fundamental in nature is not dualistic in this way. We are imputing the dualisms through the fact that we make concepts, and concepts are, in a way, creating boundaries between things that don't exist, right? So there's a, there's a way of articulating this. They're not the only ones that say this, and not all of them say it the same way. We have to be careful here. But it is it is an idea that I think is useful in relationship to whatever Loy is picking out. Because what we're trying to say here is that there's kind of a thesis that has to do with language, and then there's a thesis that has to do with what language is ostensibly about, usually, which is something external to it. Language isn't self-referential. Although we can talk about words in a meta-language, when we talk about, for example, is running is a predicate, uh, that, that, that's not the same kind of thing that's going on when we're talking about dualism in the world. So we sometimes say in philosophy that there's the metaphysics of reality in which some people occupy a dualist position, such as Descartes and the Sankhya school of Indian philosophy. And then there are other people who would say, but then there's also another type of thing where people are talking about duality created by language. And they, they're, they're really just talking about how language works and the way in which it divides. I think actually, although I'm not an expert or even that knowledgeable about it, I think Various people in um, continental philosophy have explored the version of using um, duality in the structures of language. People like Derrida and others have used this to explain and understand how language works and what we're doing with language. Um, so I think it's, it's available in multiple schools. If one was to say that all the dualities that we perceive are created by us, and it's not intrinsic in nature, but then at the same time believe that nature is mind, so that we're one with nature, then... How can those two be made consistent? Because if you're okay. saying, look, it's just made up in my mind, it's, it's not reflective of reality, but then at the same time say reality is mind. So then in some sense, the dualities are inherent in nature. So how does one make sense of that? Or can they not oh, with language? Uh, okay, okay. Well, so maybe we, uh, maybe we sidebar the ineffability thesis for a moment, because I think you, you're, you're gesturing at that, and it's very important to talk about. But I first want to get into the first part about the tension claim that like there's something in sure. tension. Yeah. So let me try and run the argument this way. Mind and nature are one and the same. Mind creates conceptual dualities, but because mind and nature are one and the same, those conceptual dualities exist in nature. Correct. Yeah, nice. I like that argument. That's actually cool. Um yeah. So when we say, and this goes back to answering actually part of your other beginning question about these schools and Indian philosophy, so I'll answer that about 
God and unity now. Mm. I'll try and bring that back in. So when we're when someone says premise one, for example, that mind and nature are one and the same, at least one way in which it's articulated in the Advaita Vedanta school is to talk about the difference between the true self, the Atman, and the felt embodied feeling of a self that occupies us when we reflect on it. So I feel like I'm the agent of my choices. I feel like my body is separate from your body. I feel like my body is separate from the things I'm sitting on and looking at in my environment. I feel like an agent, Mm -hmm. right? Those are things that are part of the felt sense of self or what we can say, yeah, I mean, it's the felt sense of self and things we attributed to it. And then what Advaitins will say, like Shankara, is that there's also an Atman, the true self, okay? And so when we're saying thesis one, premise one, the mind is part of nature, what we what is being asserted there is that the true self is identical with the one and only thing that exists, which is Brahman, and that is the thesis of how we he would understand mind is identical to nature. And when we say number two, mind creates conceptualizations, we've now moved from the true self to the embodied true self with a felt sense of self acting, uh, sorry, as an actor in the empirical world, in the world in which there are, are, are presented to us other things of diversity, right? It's that one that is making those things. So then when we draw the conclusion, we have here the fallacy of equivocation between the true self and the felt sense of self. And the only way to avoid the equivocation is to say that the true sense of self plays some role in that felt sense of self doing what it does. And I think in there, in that move right there, there's a lot of interesting things to be explored. And there someone could could push the claim that actually, yeah, they're still part of nature in some way. So what's going on here in terms of these issues about God, um, and because it's part of what you asked, I want to address that clearly, is that there isn't really an automatic need to say that if the true self is identical with the universe or the one true thing, it's in union with God. Mm-hmm. Because there is a theistic and an atheistic interpretation of the identity claim. I see. So if we so so actually I, I wrote a paper on this recently for a book coming out. So the thesis is Atman is Brahman, which is uh defended by sorry, is interpreted by two different thinkers in the Vedantic tradition. One is Shankara of the Advaita Vedanta school, and another is Ramanuja of the Vishista Advaita Vedanta school, a later school that criticized the earlier school. So the earlier school is called non-dualism, Advaita, literally non-dual. And the other one is called Vishishta Advaita, which means qualified non-dualism, or I have a different way of interpreting it, but the main thing is it's not it's not the non-dualism of um, of Shankara. Sorry, so b- this, before you continue, when you say qualified non-dualism, do you mean to say yeah. it's not as non-dual as the Advaita tradition? Like there's some qualifications on it or what? Oh, oh sorry. Okay, but okay. So, so the, so, okay, okay. So part of the issue here is that, um, that is the common way in which if you looked it up or talked to most scholars of religion, they would explain to you what the word Vishishta Advaita means in English. However, in my work and in my papers, I have avoided using that term 
precisely for actually the reason you asked. I don't think that that's going to help people by saying, oh, it's like a lesser degree of it. Or so. No, there's another way, which is called, which has to do with the internal braiding of the relationship between the one and its parts. This is actually the one that's closer to the, one, to the idea I like. And uh-huh. it's tied to a notion that Ramanuja discusses, which is called apratak siddhi. So this is a very important metaphysical notion in uh, Ramanuja's work. But b- before we get too far, let me just finish yeah, the please. first kind of part. I think that, that, that is useful here is that within the tradition, there are ways of understanding who is going to be or what is going to be God. So Brahman is God. And Brahman is the only real thing because it's permanent in time and unchanging in Shankara's system. And when you discover that your true self is one and the same with this thing, that's the claim of the non-duality. The non-duality is that what you are and what this is, is one and the same thing. Now, that would automatically imply something about a union with God or a non-separation from God or a true identicalness with God if it is the case that you had a specific interpretation of Brahman as a certain kind of thing that is God, this is the issue here that's technical mm. in the literature, is that um, some people want to have a very robust kind of personalized sense of God, like a, a personal, like a God as a, as a person or a, or a thing like of that kind. And in Shankara's system, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be like Brahman is this vast field of fundamental consciousness, and it doesn't have any person-like qualities to it. It's a, its only essential property is that it's anand, it's bliss, right? That's basically what it is. And and so Ramanuja <laughs> doesn't like this idea, and so he has more of a personalized conception of God, where where, where Brahman is kind of like the supreme person in a way. And so there's that, that thing. So that's why I said to you when you asked me this question, I said I would not say that you are forbidden from distinguishing between the union thesis and the theistic thesis. So I think you can say A is B, Atman is Brahman, but mm-hmm. what that means is not a union with God. And you can say the other one, Atman is Brahman, and what that must mean is a union with God. And, and basically, so some people might want to argue specifically about then who are using the terms Brahman or what schools are they coming from and what do we mean? But in general, I think just the thesis of identity shouldn't apply something about God because I think someone who, for example, has a certain atheistic sort of view of the universe might still think that what we fundamentally are is part of the one and only thing that is the universe, right? I see, I see. That's right. And there's a lot of ways to work out that secondary thesis. Uh, so it shouldn't be off the table for an atheist to take it. So that so that takes care of that sort of question about like whether or not we should see union theses as always ones relating us to God. Now it turns out that in a lot of cases, um, this will be true, that that something like this is being argued for, but I don't think it's required. Mm-hmm. When we met, you mentioned that there was an Indian prime minister who said, we're going to make non-dualism the pizza of India. Oh, yeah. So can you talk about that? And also talk about some of the misconceptions that many people in the West have about Mm non-dualism. Okay, I I, I remember remember this conversation because I was recently just having um, 
Pizza. dinner with my uncle. <laughs> I was having dinner with my uncle in uh, London, and he was asking me to teach him some stuff about Indian philosophy. And I actually explained to him this very same thing because mm-hmm. it's a very good thing to understand. So, for lack of a better analogy, uh, I'll say it the same way I said it to you, basically. And I hope your audience finds it humorous. But I think it would be really bad if we walked around thinking the greatest contribution of Italian cuisine to the world was pizza and pasta. There's there's so many wonderful things in Italian food that just don't have to do with pizza and pasta. For example, I was watching a show yesterday about Umbrian lentils and how interesting it is and what you can do with Umbrian lentils in making Italian salads. And I found it totally fascinating and super interesting to think about making for myself. So it's the same thing. Um, Radhakrishnan, uh, the first sort of major figure of philosophy to step into the global space. He was the Spalding Chair of Eastern Religions at Oxford in the early part of the century. Um, at one point, kind of made a decision that um, he kind of needed to like explain sort of the, what's the big contribution that Indian philosophers are making to the world. And he tended to have an Advaitin idea about it. He was kind of like, well, this is the one thing. We've got this non-dualism it's in this one school, and he kind of presented – it's not like he didn't know about the other schools, for example. Let me just make that clear. He very much was one of the main people who put together an actual book, a source book in Indian philosophy with Charles Moore that contained like all these texts and everything. So he, he was vastly knowledgeable, mm-hmm. highly skilled rhetorician, an outstanding scholar, but he made some choices about what to present, and he decided that – this was one of the things that he wanted to make clear to other people about Indian philosophy. It turns out that, as he already knew, that it's incorrect to think that this is the only school in Vedanta, first of all, specific. So Advaita Vedanta has become synonymous with Vedic thinking in a lot of the places outside of India and even in India. That's all that people know. That's completely wrong. There are several schools of Vedanta. The one I work on is actually the one from Ramanuja, which is called Vishista Advaita Vedanta. There's Abeda Beda, there's Dvaita, there's Madhva. There's a whole, I mean, there's, it just goes on. It literally just goes, there's like a lot of these little sub schools, and they have very different views about what's going on in the Vedic tradition. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is that Advaita Vedanta became kind of a lens where people would then look at the philosophy of the yoga school and try to interpret it through a Vedic lens when its actual roots were in the Sankhya tradition. It's a sister school of the Sankhya tradition. And so Sankhya and Vedanta are not the same in a lot of ways. Even many of the schools of Vedanta are different than Sankhya. But there was a tendency to try and like interpret even uh, uh, Sankhya in relationship to yoga through Vedic eyes. And so this became this this large enterprise. And one of the things that came along with this um, was kind of this idea that razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. 
The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. This school is highly spiritual. And so this is like the vast depth of the spirituality of the Indian tradition coming forward. And there was little attention paid to the fact that Indian philosophers had other attributes as well that were also interesting and good. And what did some of those things have to do with? Well, one of the things that they had to do with was rationality and logic. That, Mm. for example, is very important. The other thing that it had to do with was uh, theories of knowing. The other thing it had to do with was realism about the world as opposed to idealism about the world. So I predominantly work on what's known as the Nyaya school, which is a realist school, uh, and it's an opponent of various forms of Buddhism. And I work on Ramanuja because he's a realist, actually, unlike um, Shankara, who's either an illusionist or a relative realist. So I tend to think that the Indian schools that were engaged in realism had something to offer as well, and they have interesting ideas and debates with these schools that are more idealistic, and they offer contributions that are less well-known. And sometimes it's so it's like the thing, like, oh, we're going to go get pizza because we're going to an Italian restaurant. Or, <laughs> uh-huh. We're going to go study some Indian philosophy. We're, we're going to learn some Vedanta. That's basically kind of what I told. And I don't, and I want to make it clear, I, I don't know enough about the political situation of the time period in which Radhakrishnan was coming. I know he's an extremely erudite scholar and I don't blame him in any way for what he did. There might've been political issues going sure. on with the birth of India that made him think, hey, this is you know something that's important because I can put the spirituality of Advaita in. So he wrote this book where he talked about how spirituality is consistent with science. He actually has a title of the book, Science and Spirituality. And so he was concerned with wanting to you know, make things, you know, better. But his, the person who replaced him at Oxford, Bimal Kishna Matilal, was a Nyayaka. And so he, uh, for the next longest time, basically expounded on the Nyaya school and the relevance of it to debates in contemporary epistemology and logic. He studied with V.W.O. Quine at Harvard University and was a contemporary of P.F. Strawson at Oxford. He wrote perhaps my favorite book in Indian philosophy, Perception, an essay on classical Indian ways of knowing, um, which is a phenomenal work that engages a lot of um, uh, analytic philosophy of the time period, as well as Indian philosophy, and is also the inspiration for my continued efforts to follow by developing theories of perception in Indian philosophy along with um, analytic philosophy now. So that's a little bit of like the storyline that I think is is common among scholars to know, that, that this there was this change of sort of... Um, of things. And now there's become like a reemergence almost of interest in Advaita Vedanta because of the contemporary debates on theories of consciousness. So in that air field, what has happened is, as you saw when I came to MindFest at Susan's conference, 
there is a growing interest in the fact that some of the most contemporary moves being made in debates about consciousness, such as the panpsychist versions and theories promoted by lots of people nowadays, um, have strong resonances with very important trends in Indian philosophy. And so there's a lot of work being done now to understand how that conversation can unfold as well. Boy, you said like a litany that's just fascinating. (laughs) Thanks. There's quite a few threads. So one of them is there are some people who watch videos like this and they're in the West and they feel like they know plenty about the East or Buddhist traditions or Vedic traditions because they've watched Alan Watts or maybe read a couple books and done psychedelics and they have this insight that's fairly prevalent in these circles that rationality and logic are the opposite of what you need in order to get some handle on the truth or reality. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned that rationality and logic is something that wasn't advertised as coming from the East. It's more the non-dualist Advaita Vedanta that was. Mm-hmm. So can you please expound on that? And then also, sure. there may be a couple terms that come up that so, when they wait, do... Wait, do you... Do you so just to clarify, you want me to expound on what the relationship is between these the, the, the development of rationality and logic in India and its relationship to these other non-dualistic ideas? Yeah, yeah. The fact that you can understand, not just with irrationality and experience, but something analytic, something logical. When I say understand, I mean get to know oneself or get to know reality or get to know God or religion or spirituality. Because it's generally seen as two approaches. One is more experiential and one's more analytic. And the West is seen as more analytic and the East is seen more experiential. I'm painting broad strokes. I'm just saying, Yeah, I'm sure you see yeah. this as well. Yes, okay, and while you're explaining this, some terms may come up like illusionist or idealist or realist or relative realist. When they yeah. come up naturally, explain them, please. Okay, sure. Thank you. That's a, that's a very good question. And I think it's, um, it, it's something that I think my experience in writing and in research can sort of um, shed some light on in an insightful way. So one of the things I think that is a nice place to start is by looking at a common interpretation and presentation of Buddhism in the West. Uh, it's also found in India, but where a lot of what is the standard sort of thing to talk about there is mindfulness meditation. It is taken to be something that has spent sort of undergone a lot of neuroscientific investigation. I even know some of the people who work on that stuff. It's also something that has attracted a, a wide audience uh, mm-hmm. for various different types of people. And there's something about mindfulness meditation that's healing. It clearly has this property for lots of people. And there's a tendency to want to be interested in this component of Buddhism, uh, not negatively in the sense of like, I'm just going to put everything else away, but just, you know, that's the thing, that's 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 the pizza for Buddhism, basically. Um, so one of the things that I have found in my research, and I have actually uh, wrote a fairly large piece on this, actually, because I had spent so much time thinking about it, was that it is uh, not historically accurate at all to think that Buddhists weren't involved in the development of logical ideas or that they themselves did not engage in some of the most vehement arguments with their opponents. Mm-hmm. So Dharmakirti is considered to be Dignanga and Dharmakirti are considered to be two of the most important uh, Buddhist philosophers after Nagarjuna uh, and the Buddha himself, obviously. Uh, and they spent a lot of time thinking about the rules for proper reasoning and about ways of knowing about the world. 
Um, their work is not so much presented in the discussion and conversation about meditation and how to live one's life as you might find, for example, with people who talk about Shanti Deva. So Pema Chodron has a nice book about Shanti Deva, and um, I think a lot of people go to these kinds of works or they go to the works that are talking about what to do with the stuff that arises in consciousness in terms of living a life and being compassionate. And um, these are, first of all, I'm just, I want to make it clear to your audience, like, in no way am I disparaging that. I have spent time myself meditating. I used to go to a Buddhist center like two times a week. I've done Vipassana in mm -hmm. India and everything. So He's on LSD right now. <laughs> so, but 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 the, the thing I want to say is that it is just factually incorrect that they weren't engaged and thought logical reasoning was very important. The evidence is just too much. And in fact, I can point you just to one 780-page book by Daniel Perdue, which is a study of reasoning methods within the Buddhist tradition, within the uh, Madhyamaka and Tibetan Buddhist traditions. It's an extremely powerful book. It might not mm -hmm. be accurate about everything that they came up with, but um, it definitely shows the rigorness, the analyticity, so the analytical nature right. of their minds. And I think it's very clear that actually learning to argue and learning to understand your own emotions through meditation and emotion regulation are two things that Buddhists care about. I, I don't. I think that the the thing that you know pushing the sort of one line is uh, an incorrect thing. But that doesn't mean that, for example, you can't be like, well, the thing I'm coming here for uh, is to get some peace and comfort. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I just think that, like, yeah. So I think that's one place where you're going to find the sort of um, incorrect representation of like you know how rationality is present in the one thing that people will be like. Oh, but the Buddhists had it all right because it's like all the conceptualization and everything in our mind and all that analytic stuff is is really bad. Well, sure, there is that storyline, but I mean, there is also this other stuff where like they're sitting there arguing with other schools, trying to figure out what is the best way to make a logical argument. There's a debate between the Jains and the Buddhists about what is the proper uh, way to understand valid inference. It's a very intricate debate. It's very wonderful. So it's just it's just not. So that's number one, I would say. Yeah. Number two, that's directly sort of like the, the the showstopper oftentimes, is this idea that idealism is prevalent or more prevalent in Indian philosophy and materialism or reductionism is not. And that is just factually incorrect. Okay, that's the interesting. Charvaka, the Charvaka school is a very prominent school of Indian philosophy that's in conversation with various Hindu schools, of the six of them roughly that there are, the Jain school and the Buddhist school, and they're around for quite some time. I don't have the exact records correct, but I have a friend, Ethan Mills, who worked on Charvaka, and he probably can inform us about the exact like correlation of when they were around and they debated people. And they totally have like a hardcore materialist theory of the mind uh, in the sense of, I mean, I, I, I don't want to use illusionism, which I'm going to talk about soon, uh, to describe them, but maybe there's a version of the kind of illusionism that you find in contemporary philosophy floating around. Rather, what I think they have is this sort of tuning thesis, that it's just because you sort of get the, the neurons and the chemical things in the right way to mix in the same way that you get you get the thing up here, right? It's, just, it's, it's like purely determined by that thing. And I think the example they give is making beer. I think that's the one. That like when you put the right ingredients in the right order, the beer just comes, that just is that. It's just like an, an emergent property, but it's just uh -huh. coming right out of that thing. I think that's kind of 
What that, so I'll tell you, Gennard and Ganeri has an excellent paper about emergentism in ancient Greek philosophy and in the um, Charvaka school in Brasapati. I teach this paper all the time. It's a wonderful read. It's so interesting to see how he portrays the sort of importance of this school. And then you can see, wow, it's, I will never ever again say that there is no kind of yeah. like strong materialism or something in that school. So that's number two. And then the third one, I think I already mentioned, is the fact that there are various schools. So there are two schools of Mimamsa, the Prabhakara and the Bhatta. And uh, then there's another realist school, which is called the Nyaya. And then there's the Vaisheshika also. So of those schools, some of them, the Nyaya, at least in the Prabhakara and Mimamsa, are realist in some sense, more than being idealist. So what do we mean by realism here in the context of classical Indian philosophy? Mm -hmm. I think that perhaps the easiest notion to go with is the idea that there are objects in the world independently of our mind and that our minds come into contact with them. And most importantly, at least in my understanding of it, is that those things we come into contact with constrain the way in which we can think. Right. The things out there are constraining in some ways the way we think. The idea that we have a complete free play of imagination and a capacity to impute whatever is of the fancy of our mind onto anything is more of a kind of idealist sort of move. And it's one that is resisted strongly by the Nyaya school. That is not their sort of uh, way of thinking about things. And so they have a lot of interesting ideas in that area. So let's bring in illusionism now. So illusionism, at least in contemporary analytic philosophy, is kind of defended and articulated by Keith Frankish. And it's kind of the idea that the phenomenal properties in my experience are illusory. And the claim is, or at least what we need to understand is, in what sense is the what-it's-like aspect, the phenomenal properties of seeing red, for example, an illusion, right? So in what sense is that an illusion? So that's kind of like, you know, the illusion, illusionist thesis in contemporary, you know, um, analytic philosophy of mind. Illusionism in Indian philosophy can be understood differently, and it has to do with a different idea. It has to do with time, okay? Okay. So things that are said to be illusory oftentimes are said to be those things which are not permanent in ah, time. Right, this right, is extremely right. true. Yeah. So, so, so we have this, like I, I wrote this book review of um, David Chalmers' book, Reality Plus, where he defends the idea that digital things are not illusions, they're real also. But I brought it into conversation with Shankara because I thought that Shankara's definition of what is real was one of the definitions of real that David's book didn't really address. He was addressing more common sense notions that are found both in Indian philosophy and in Western philosophy, such as that to be real is to be a difference maker, to have causal power, right? That's, that's like a common notion of what we mean. If you have causal power, you're real in some sense, right? You okay. can cause things, right? Yeah, but in, in Shankara's system, and, and also in other ones, to say that something is real is to say that it doesn't change in time, mm. that it's permanent in time. So the idea is, for example, in Buddhist philosophy, that the self is an illusion because what is meant by that claim, at least one of the main claims is meant 
but is it's not permanent in time. Because it's this is super interesting. Like everything you're saying, geez, Louise, there's been like <laughs> 10 over the course of the last 10, more than that over the course of the, just this one answer. Right. So you want me to elaborate on this one? Yeah. So, but just a moment. It sounds like there's so many mistranslations happening. It's as if even with the word God. So when we say yeah. unity with God, the Christian may say, mm-hmm. oh, okay. So they're talking about my God, but it's not as if those two concepts are. Yeah, that's right. They even know about one another. And then when they say, yeah, the world is pens. The world is just made up of pens. And you're like, okay, well, it's made up of this, but then they mean quills. And that's a poor example, but you get the idea. Real is impermanent. So this cup is not real because maybe it'll melt one day. But it's real. In another sense, it's real. We're holding it. And then another sense, science may use the word real as fundamental. But then there are also notions. So that's where I was going to go right now. I'm glad you brought that up. That's precisely the relevant difference. So... Um, what is going on, if you want to see a very nice contrast, is exactly what you just said, Kurt. That fundamentality mm-hmm. is a way of saying that something is real. So if you're saying it's fundamental, you're saying at least that it's not reducible to something else. And secondly, that it has explanatory power, right? Mm-hmm. Those are two things about saying. So, and so in, in a lot of parts of contemporary analytic philosophy, to say that something is real it's like you're kind of banking on saying it's fundamental, it has explanatory power, and it's not reducible to something else. So when someone says that your phenomenal properties are an illusion, at least part of what they're saying is that they're not fundamental and they don't really have that much explanatory power, given a certain range of things that we want to say we explain. But in Shankara's system, that is not relevant, right? To right. be fundamental is one thing, but to be permanent in time is the important property of being fundamental, right? So Brahman is real. It is also fundamental. But what's marking its fundamentality is that it's permanent in time and not changing it at a certain level of explanation. That's the thing. So that is, you're right. There is a kind of difference that has to do, and it has to do with this thing about fundamentality and um, temporality. That's kind of the contrast between those two notions. Mm-hmm. Now, I know these are from different areas, what I'm about to say, but did this notion of impermanence have any relation? Did it lead them to come up with some notion of Platonism? Oh. So Plato would say, like, look, so mathematical statements are timeless. There's a notion of timelessness. And impermanence sounds like timelessness. So would the, and I've forgotten the person's name, Narujana? Nagarjuna. Yeah. Yeah. I so, can't. No, okay, right. So let's, let's you get You get in. the idea. No, no, I, I think I, I see, I see a connection. So, um, yeah. So, let's get to the Plato thing in a minute. Minute after we just clarify a couple of things about this little area of, um, yeah, I think it'll be useful to do this distinction. Please. So, the Hindus and the Buddhists, when they are debating the nature of the self. And one of them is saying it's permanent in time. And the other one is saying it's impermanent. There are actually logically two different interpretations that you can take of the notion of impermanence. So, number one, something is impermanent when it is momentary. Something is impermanent when it's semi-permanent. Semi-permanent means... There's a time in which the thing comes into existence, 
and there's a time in which it goes out of existence. So cups and you and I are semi-permanent things under the, before we get too philosophical under this sort of sure. everyday definition. So momentary has two definitions also. Something is momentary if it has no duration in time or its duration in time is fleeting. It's so small okay. that it's not worth discussing. But there, at least in Buddhist philosophy, there are two different notions of this. So now you can see what's going on. Many Hindu schools of philosophy are saying that the self is permanent in time. And then many Buddhist philosophers are saying, well, given that we're constructed of these five things, the skandhas, and each of these things changed, it's got to be the case that the thing you're talking about is changing and therefore it can't be permanent. So it's impermanent. And then they can go down the road of saying it's momentary. It has no duration in time, but it has a causal succession in a series between each individual moments of do 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 like a line of things going or each duration has like a fleeting millisecond it's actually it's like they actually tried to figure this out it's called mind moments actually mm. like what is the actual thing but i mean there's two different ways that it has no duration or has some very small duration uh and then the other thing i'm introducing is that this is another way of thinking about um temporality where you talk about things being semi-permanent but this notion of being semi-permanent doesn't really show up in the debate. So the Hindus and the Buddhists are mostly debating this issue about two definitions of momentariness and a definition of permanence. Okay, so that cleans up now the temporality aspects of that debate. Now, there's this issue you brought up about mathematics and Plato, where you were trying to talk about the fact that in Plato's system, there are some things that are out of time, okay? Right, so, so someone might say in a platonic theory of mathematics, mathematical objects are timeless. Like so, and then again, we have to make two different distinctions here. There is one is being out of time, mm -hmm. and being for all time, yes, eternal. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. So there are these two different notions, and and you're correct. There is this one that says the platonic forms are outside of time because if they were in time, but eternal then they could have some causal relationship to us. So because of this kind of causal inertness uh, of a certain kind that, that we said, so we always distinguish between eternality and timelessness. Now, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of looking at Indian philosophy, it is oftentimes hard to find a place where there are deep discussions about the philosophical nature of mathematical truths. So that part of the question I uh, I have actually asked one of my friends who was a philosopher of mathematics who was interested in Buddhism kind of like 10 years ago. I was like, hey, I've always been curious. Like, what do you think the philosophy of mathematics is in Buddhism? And he was like, I, I, I don't really know. I'm not saying there isn't any. Sure. I know in the Nyaya school there is actually some philosophy of mathematics, but I'm not sure that it relates to time. However, the other aspect of it is correct. The timelessness component does come up. If my recollection serves me correctly, I think actually that Brahman in Shankara's system is outside of time because it's the ground of time. Uh. Right, so it's outside of time. So it would be something like the timelessness of mathematical objects. That would be the connection or the relationship. But again, it's not the same thing because at the same time, although there's this timelessness that's there, there's this issue about the fact that, you know, um, what is the kind of thing that they are saying is 
timeless is the thing that's so yeah it's hard to, i almost feel like right. i caught myself in a contradiction yeah. because because it's permanent in time which is what makes it real but it's timeless because it's the ground of time but again it's one of those things where I, I would just say, like, yeah, there are complicated aspects to the theory. I, I wouldn't be surprised if actually this is already something that's well known in the literature on this topic. Go. When you yeah. were speaking, and it's difficult to not get tripped up because of the words we're using. And earlier we had talked about rationality and logic, that they do have a place in Indian philosophy and Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. What about conceptuality and language as well, because those are also seen tied in with rationality and logic as being repudiated in the East. The mm-hmm. conception in the West is that yeah, they're Yeah, so right. So again, this is... Um, a misconception. No, 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 no. I, I won't... We'll, we'll let that part go for now, and I'll just say about the, the positive thing that you're actually touching into. There is a rich history in Indian philosophy of debating the same topics that we talk about in uh, Western philosophy that come under the heading of philosophy of language. How does language work? How do we understand sentences? What are the ways in which we have primary meanings and secondary meanings? What's the difference between connotation and denotation? How is it that we understand each other when we're speaking mm-hmm. to one another? What's the ways in which our minds are able to grasp the meaning of a sentence? What is the role of semantic intuition in understanding? All of these topics are very prominent. And also because Sanskrit grammar itself is such an interesting, powerful thing, there are all these pundits like Panini and Bharatarari in the 5th century who have all these interesting things to say about uh, syntax and semantics and pragmatics. So almost all of the major things that we want to talk about or have been talked about and debated in in Western analytic philosophy concerning philosophy of language, they find correlates of discussions and maybe some of them are cached out in different ways. So this answers the part that says, is there a presence of discussion of the way language works in relationship to reality to be found deeply in Indian philosophy? Absolutely. Almost every school is heavily invested in giving some account of how language works. Now, you might, as you did, ask like, well, what does that have to do with this other thing about like whether or not overcoming how language Uh controls the way we understand reality leads to some kind of liberation? And you are absolutely correct. These things are going to be related. They are. And okay, now I'm going to give you a wider explanation of why they're related. In Indian philosophy, across the board, there is a general tendency to give a theory of something because it pertains to this other big question. How do I get out of suffering? Okay, so like, like, like what's the, the going question back in the history of when all this stuff gets off the ground? Well, the question is, life sucks. How do I get out of this suffering? Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I'm giving a theory of knowledge or a theory of language, those things will be expected to be tied at some level in my school or in my debates with people to these questions about liberation, right? So something in the Buddha's thinking is telling him that if we recognize the impermanence of the self, we can release ourselves from a kind of suffering. If in the Jain system, we can understand the many-sidedness of things. We can come to see the nature of reality and truth in a way that maybe can ease our suffering, right? Now, now sometimes that connection is made very explicit. Sometimes it's not made very explicit. But is there an expectation within these systems? And by the way, they're called darshan, and it stands for worldview because they're supposed to be comprehensive 
uh, systems of propositions that are networked together and mutually support each other as a way of understanding reality and putting us as a place in I there see, see. where we can where we can see how our so this so, is so like like a, like a, like this is the way things are. This is my worldview, and as a consequence of that, yeah. I can understand how to un, uh, get out of my my suffering. So yes, I, it is correct. Now some specific ones. Now I'll go very specific. For example, I'll first mention Shankara. We'll say something like the the kind of thing that's going to get you to really under release in a lot of ways is to see an identification between the true self. And Brahman, and I think the term in Sanskrit is Brahmagyana, which is like sort of the insight of this uh, Brahman. And so this is, becomes interesting because now we're going to get into a very important argument here in his view, is that knowledge of this kind cannot be in the subject-object structure. Okay, So ordinary experience in the world has a subject-object structure. Because of the identity between the true self and Brahman, the knowledge of that cannot have a subject-object structure. As a consequence, this gets to your ineffability issue, nothing I can say in language could, strictly speaking, be correct if it's articulated in the positive form. Because if I say say it in a positive form, I apply a predicate to a subject that puts it in a subject-object structure but it fundamentally isn't a subject-object structure. Mm-hmm. So there is some kind of ineffability about... And now we can actually, if you want me to, I can go through three different kinds of ineffability found in Indian philosophy. But, but the idea is that, that the experience is non-dual, although most Western philosophers following Brentano, like this is what I talked about at MindFest, would say that experience is essentially... Um, subject object consciousness is always conscious of something that's the very famous line that you get from brentano and so what would it mean to say i have a non-dual experience I, look you, you can actually kurt can you hear the the oddity in here what would it mean to say i have a uh-huh. non-dual experience <laughs> right so this is the kind of thing like what, what, what i can't articulate what, what this is because it's non-dual right so um, so right. So then there are questions about whether or not those experiences are valid. Are they forms of knowing? Because if someone argues that knowledge is always subject object, but this school is saying that there's a kind of knowledge that is non-subject object, is there a way for us to rationally assess something that transcends the way in which logic can be applied as an evaluative metric? Because logic applies evaluatively to things in a subject-object structure. And this thing you're saying, so what is the way to that? And this gets us into discussions. Uh, so one of the terms that you might have heard before is yogaja pratyaksha, which is the, a special insight of the yogin to see, to see something. It's a kind of like a, an intellectual seeing, but then again, it's not a seeing, but seeing as a subject-object structure. And so there are other, thing, um, other terms that are used in Sanskrit to talk about it. Uh, and the basic idea is that there are experiences that just don't have a dualistic structure, right? And that leads to a certain kind of ineffability. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll let you ask me a question unless you want me to expl- explain no, please more go. about just, You want me to keep talking about ineffability theories? Sure, please. Yeah, I can give you two different versions of ineffability. Or three, I think there is. Okay, so... So... I'll give it to you in a very simple way you can understand. So suppose my experience 
I mean, this is a very easy example, I think. That's why I like this example. Suppose my experience is rich in the following sense. Anytime I describe it to you, were you or I or an ideal version of me to reflect longer, we could describe it in more detail that's still true, right? So like I start now and I say, okay, uh, uh, my experience right now is of uh, two screen, a screen that's split in half with on and on one side and curtain on the side. I'm like, okay, true. Mm-hmm. And then I say, oh, but it's also of a uh, uh, kind of one color on the left side and one color on the right side. True. It's also of the, of the color hue, magenta on the left side, and on the right side, white. You yeah. see, we can keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Right, okay, right, so right. What, what, uh, okay, so, so on this view, uh, experience is rich. And every time we give a description, we can find another description that's more precise and true. But both descriptions are true. Now, why is experience ineffable? Because we can never get the complete description. This is called ineffability by completion, uh-huh. incompleteness. I can never give the infinitely rich description of my experience. Even if at every level of describing it, it's true, it's not the case that I'm going to exhaust it and get to that infinite description. So this is so Sorry, we, is this argument no, no. an in-principle argument or like a practicality argument? Like in-principle, no, you never uh, it's, no, you, no, so that's a very good question. I think actually the way it's run is in-principle. I do not think it's run in terms... It's not like, oh, we're going to get tired in 100 hours and basically yeah. then on into... Yeah. Like, no. So there's kind of two versions in the in-principle one. And in, in, in the in it's definitely not the practical one. It's the in-principle sure. one. But then there's also two versions of it. it, it, it it's that... There are an infinite number of descriptions, and we're never going to exhaust that because we're finite creatures. And also that there are a bunch of descriptions. We don't even know what those are yet that we could discover them and make it right. So there's one like the discovery version of it. We're discovering more and more about our experience. Another like they already exist, all the concepts, it's just we're never going to do it. Right. So those are two different versions of the in-principle one. But I want to bring to your attention the fact that this seems to be about truth being present in the description of my experience, but never being able to complete it. So what is ineffable is the complete true description. Okay, that's one version. Now let's go for another completely different version. There's another version that says, no, what's going on is that every time I describe my experience, I put it in language. The language makes it appear as if it has a certain structure inherent in it. It doesn't have that structure. Because it doesn't have that structure, what is literally said is false of reality. Sorry, it doesn't have the structure of reality? Like language has a structure to it? Yes, the the language, yes. Right, so I'll give you a a specific version of it. When I say there is a horse in front of me, I use the universal horse and apply it to the animal in front of me. That might make it seem like there are these things called universals in reality. But as some Buddhists will argue, there are no universals out there in reality. There are only particulars, svalakshana. There's only these particulars out there in reality. And because there are only particulars in reality and no universals, when we express things in language such that a universal, it deludes us into thinking that there are these things there. And what we say in some sense is just literally false, right? There is no universal out there. There's just a particular, right? And so on this version, 
the oh, true the nature of reality is in some sense ineffable because when we put it in language to speak it, we falsify what's there. Do you recall no? where you were? Just continue. Yeah, I know where I'm. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so in this other version, what's kind of popping out as salient is that the representation of what is in reality in language falsifies what's really in reality. And so when we mean, when we say it's ineffable, it means that the structure of language just distorts in a way where it does not express what's really there. And we don't have any other way to do it. It's not saying, like in the first one, that, that we, it could be the case that our descriptions are all true. We just can't finish it, and therefore it's ineffable because it's unfinishable. It's saying that it's ineffable because the structure of the thing we put it in always falsifies it, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And so, um, yeah, that's the second version. Now, between these two versions, there is another version which doesn't have to do with falsity and incompleteness, but it has to do in part with the difference between truth and falsity, right? So on this version, it's ineffable because some of the things we'll say about our experience are true, and some of the uh, things we'll say about our experience are false, and when you conjoin something that's true and false by the rules for conjunction, you get a false statement. Right, so so the the second one was kind of saying no matter what we say, it's going to be the case that it's false because nature language fundamentally puts something there that isn't there. Um, and the first one said in those cases where we're truly do- doing it, we're never going to get to the complete one. The third one says that more often than not, we're doing we're saying things that are true, but also we're saying some things that are false, and because the truth and falsity conjoined together, that ends up with a false conjunction. I see. Yeah. That last one sounds super subtle. So that one yeah. has a name? It's, it's a, um, I definitely, I call them the one by completeness, incompleteness. That's the first one. Then the second is the one by the falsity of the structure of language. And the third one is by the mixed cases, the truth uh-huh. and the falsity. By, it's by, by the fact that, that descriptions conjoined together in sentences form yeah. a conjunction and conjunction requires all conjuncts to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. So now again, you wanted to sort of get into like where, you know, sort of the spirituality aspect of this can be seen. Sure. And, and, and I think that part of that answer in some of these schools is that if you constantly are stuck in the analytical mind and you're thinking, you're constantly trying to understand your reality in a way that is inherently full of, dichotomies that will make things seem true to you that are in fact false and that by reducing your analytical tendencies and focusing on something non-analytical or stopping Mm -hmm. the conceptualization in your mind is a way to get to a form of peace and liberation okay so that's one way i can see a connection here that's definitely propounded in some of these schools and different, and actually, you know, it's useful for me to point out that I'm intentionally not giving names to all of these ideas. Like, oh, this is this person from the eighth century who said this, precisely because I think these ideas are straightforwardly understandable. Like, nothing I said I, I believe is something so complicated. I mean, like you, you can see there's a difference between incompleteness, mm-hmm. 
right, falsity right. by structure and mixed cases. Like that's that's all we need. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Three questions. I'll throw them both out. I'll throw them all out. I mean, and then you'll just tell me which one you want to answer most. Okay. Okay. So, one is about suffering, and much like we use the word real as sometimes meaning impermanent or sometimes meaning fundamental or sometimes meaning something else. Does the word suffering, in the way that it's being used in these Indian traditions and Buddhist traditions, doesn't mean the same that we think of here? So when they're saying we must eliminate suffering or this is in order to eliminate suffering or this aids the elimination of suffering, is it the same kind of suffering? So I'll put that aside. I've written these down, but I want to say them so you Mm -hmm. have time to think about them as well. Another one is about the incompleteness argument. And that reminds me of Daniel Dennett, who said that Mary in Mary's room could have the experience of qualia if you were able to explain everything to her. So the thought experiment is that she's blind. I believe it's that she's blind and you have to explain Mm -hmm. what blue is. And Daniel Dennett said, yes, you can. If you give enough facts, it becomes isomorphic to the experience of blue. And I've forgotten that argument. But if you know that argument, then I wanted to hear your take on it. If you don't, then we can forget about it. And then number three was about Chomsky. Chomsky was saying that most of the words that we use, we think they're referencing something in external reality, but they're not. They're referencing something in mind. So for instance, he uses the word river. And then he talks about the river that's near him. It's now empty. There's no water flowing through it, but we still call it a river. And if they paved over it, they may still call it a river. And so the word river can refer to it, but it's not exactly this flowing water that we think it is. It can have multiple aspects. But then he said, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. It just means that it's not referring to something external and that there's a reality to the words that we're referencing in our mind. So for instance, there is a painting behind you, and just because we can't explicate what a painting is precisely doesn't mean that painting's not real. Like, we have some intuition that we're conveying with one another that maybe that intuition is correct or real, and doesn't mean your wife isn't real, doesn't mean your kids aren't real, or your father, just because they're not fundamental and so on, or just because they're not independent of mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were the three. The n- Number one, the suffering doesn't mean the same. Number two, Daniel Dennett. And number three, Chomsky. Well, I'm going to do all three. I like all three. All right. I think that's, I think that's, that's a really good question. So the first one, uh, let's, uh, the word in Sanskrit, I believe that's most commonly used is dukkha. That's the term. Actually, I believe that the Buddhists are also using. Um, I think that there are connotations, sorry, theoretical considerations in certain traditions when they talk about dukkha that don't occur in the mind of English speakers when they are using the common sense notion of suffering. So I'll give you the one that I most often discuss. Um, I'll ask this as a question. If you are exalted and happy right now because uh, something wonderful that you've wanted for a long time in your life happen just imagine that uh-huh. particular thing whatever it is it doesn't sure. have to be money or it's whatever you want but that thing happens now yeah and kurt has it and kurt is flooded with happiness exaltation tears of joy would you say that in the moment when that's happening you're also suffering hmm no that's right so i think the english use of the word suffering would think that that is a bit incoherent. Right, right. I do think that there are some Indian traditions that would say that in those moments, 
there is a way in which you're suffering because you're clinging to the temporal duration of the sensation, which is essentially impermanent. Mm. You will not feel that exaltation forever. Yet in virtue of having that joy, tears of happiness, or whatever is going on, the ineffable happiness of Kurt's moment, there will be some clinging psychologically to its future continuedness, which essentially can't happen. And the clinging involved in the feeling of happiness is suffering itself because it is essentially going to be frustrated. Uh-huh. Okay, so that, I think, is clearly a way in which the concept of suffering via dukkha is used in certain Indian traditions that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about suffering in, um, in the English context. And I, another way to put it is that oftentimes in English, when we're using the word suffering, we already recognize the difference between uh, accepted and unaccepted suffering. So when I'm bench pressing and it hurts, I accept the suffering as a necessary okay. good, a necessary pain for the good sure. that I want. Unaccepted suffering. When somebody goes and smacks me over the back of my head and I'm in pain and I don't see what's going on at all. So we already accept that. And when we, when we use the claim... When we say we're suffering in English, we almost always mean it's of the unaccepted kind, right? We're never right. suffering. So, so our uses go that way. I think that's commonly what we mean. And I don't think that, that we take into consideration the idea that this idea of clinging to the future continuation of an exalted state of pleasure uh, is a form of suffering. And I, I do think Buddhists have a lot of interesting things to say about that. In other words, it's a synonym of clinging to suffering, which is why they have an oh, emphasis oh, on see, letting go, which is the yeah, opposite yeah, yeah, of clinging. I see what you're saying. Um, I don't think it's synonym is not the relation that comes to my mind. I think maybe more the idea that suffering doesn't apply just to the temporal moments it applies to the relationship between the temporal moments of the state of mind and its future, uh, like what's mm-hmm. going to come next. Right. So then so, to them, in principle, like if there was a way that you could feel happy forever, so you got whatever it is you get, or maybe getting doesn't matter to you, it's just some state someone waved a magic wand. Yeah. And you like this moment, that you like this bliss that you feel. It's, a, it's an infinite MDMA pill, an eternal MDMA pill then would they call that suffering? If in this thought experiment, God can do whatever God wants, God waved the magic hand and or the magic wand and said, this is never going away, you don't need to worry, then would they still call that suffering? If they're just based, I'm just saying, this is so hypothetical. Yeah. Maybe they don't even think no, about no, this. No, I, I, um, I just want to know, because I'm trying to drill it, down it is, on, it, would it, that still be yeah. considered? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think I think it's also first of all, I think it's admissible. That's the main thing that's important. And what I mean by that is yeah. that sometimes cross-cultural philosophy leads to inadmissible questions. I think this is totally admissible. I see. We're gonna learn something about what they're thinking about temporal duration and the causal relationships between moments of pleasure and their future productivity. Right. So what so one idea is that 
is that I'm going to now dress up your argument in like, sure, language please. I would use it to like, like, it's just, oh, it's just a contingent fact that it goes away. There's no essential property to the pleasure in a relationship to me that it's going to go away. So it, it does go away and you guys are picking up on that. It's impermanent. Yeah. That, that's not, that's a contingent property. What if it was the kind that was permanent? Uh, then how would your argument apply that we're suffering in those moments? Yeah. So I, I think it does apply. I do, I do think it does apply. And I think the answer is probably, I mean, strictly speaking, the answer is going to be, it's just not permanent. That's the, I mean, obviously that's going to be the argument to the move that's going to be used. It's in the nature of these kinds of things to be momentary. That's oh, so a lot they of would say it's there. essential to it. Um, yes. No, no, sorry. If it's in its nature. Um, no, 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 no. Sorry, right, right. I, I meant, yeah, no, that's a good point. Very good point. I think I meant essential to the kind, right, that, that they're going to go away. The fact that one of them has uh, a, a longer temporal duration of pleasure before it hits pain is the contingent thing. But you, yes, you're right. The kind, it's in the nature of the kind of pleasure and pain that they will go away. Um yeah, so I think that that's right. So it'll be a disagreement about, you know, what properties of them are essential or not. That's correct. I think that's that's right. I mean, do we go? Yeah, we're going to get to Chomsky and Dennett, but let's linger here just a moment longer. Yeah, sure. Our discussion started with this hedonic tone of pleasure and pain, and then mm -hmm. you were saying some mm -hmm. schools of thought see the pain as an independent access of the pleasure. So it sounds to me like they're saying, it sounds to me in my Western mode, it sounds to me like they're saying, that if you're on this pleasure axis, that you're inevitably in some positive value on the negative, on the pain axis. Like you're inevitably suffering. Is that the case? Um, not, not is that the case, like in reality, but is that what they're saying? So in order to drill down into that, we need to go to a specific text and person and see exactly I what see. the theory is. So I think, I think generally we can say about what they are saying in a general yeah, sense yeah. that's useful. And we're talking primarily about Buddhism here. Uh, what we can say about it in general is that um, you gave an explanation and say, by saying, because there's a scale, right? Mm. Like it's this way, and if you're on this side, it's the pleasure thing, and if you're on this side... It's the pain thing, and there's not these two different things. So, right. So, so let, we can give the we can analyze this two ways. We can say like, is it the hedon doloric model, or is it like the, yeah. the heat cold model? And and how does that pertain to its temporal temporality, right? And I think that's totally reasonable, right? And I don't think either of them actually is going to help with the position that it's that that their duration is fleeting and they will go away. But if you want. Uh, an argument that mm -hmm. actually supports this that I think they would give, the Buddhists, and I also think other people would give is, um, when have you or heard of anyone experiencing any type of pleasure that didn't have a duration? An argument by induction seems warranted here, mm -hmm. right? I, for example, know that all my pains and pleasures have passed in time. Everyone I've talked to is such that their pains and pleasures have passed. We're all relatively similar in this respect, so it's reasonable for me to believe that pains and pleasures pass in time. Mm -hmm. But it's our empiricists, after all. I mean, they're very empirical in their reasoning. <laughs> I mean, this is like a... I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, hey, <laughs> there's a very good reason for you to... I mean, right. maybe there's some wacky, like, you know, argument about how, like, you know, you can derive it from first principles. But hey, from our experience, it sounds like this is what's going on. You know, and, and actually, this is the argument for why the self 
It's impermanent in time. I notice that my conscious states change. I notice as a child, my body has grown. I notice that my intentionalities change from moment to moment. I notice that sometimes I have pleasure. Sometimes I have pain. So the five skandhas are constantly changing. What's the evidence for that? Well, it's empirical observation, right? Like that's, that seems like, so I don't see, I don't think they wouldn't think that that's a good argument. Now, would someone who is interested in the possibility of it through imagination say, well, we can imagine like you did in the thought experiment, such a property being such that it was held. And in that case, would we be led to the conclusion that the person is still suffering on this model? And I think, yes, it would be harder to say that because, in fact, the clinging is never frustrated. It's always satisfied. Um, but then again, I think it would, might break with the fundamental idea of these. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm right. going to provide a counterexample to what I said, and then I'm going to counter my counter. And I want to hear what okay. you think. Okay. When you gave your presentation, you said that the canvas is bliss, meaning that when you remove everything, the feeling that's left is actually a positive one, or at least that's one way of interpreting it. And then someone said, yeah, but isn't bliss a qualia if you're removing quality? Like someone had to raise their hand and ask that question. And I forgot what your response was, so forgive me. But anyhow, that would seem to indicate that you can just be on the pleasure axis. So that's my counter, that you can be. But then my counter to that is saying, you can be, quote unquote, you're putting some identity there. Whereas in order to get to that state, it's extremely self-effacing to the point of nirvana or not being a person or not having an eye. So anyway, I don't know if what I said was correct, but please use that as a jumping uh, off point. Well, first of all, I think, I think, I think, I think you, you've touched on a very um, in, insightful connection that I don't think I was going to navigate towards, but which we should discuss, which is, is the experience in an advaitant system of having the knowledge that you're one, even though it's non-dual knowledge, one with the Brahman. Isn't that a form of eternal bliss, which is not going to be taken away in any way in time in the world? And also, isn't it precisely the case that it won't have this temporal duration problem because it's not in the subject-object structure? It's outside of the subject-object structure, and time applies in the subject-object structure. So yeah, I think that that could be a, a very solid difference between the the notion of dukkha and sukha, which is the opposite, mm. in these two schools. I mean, I'm, I'm roughly I don't I, I I put less stake in nailing things down to specific people because we're playing with an idea that obviously we can work out analytically, and what I we're see. saying is that 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 in one system. This experience of non-dual identity with the one and only thing whose essential nature is ananda, why wouldn't it lead to it? Yeah, actually, I'm going to give you two more things on this that are really interesting. I have my other friend, Swami Madananda, who has written about uh, Sri Ramakrishna's uh, mystical experiences. Uh, my recollection serves me correctly when Sri Ramakrishna had some of these experience, he wandered around all the time, like laughing like a child and being really happy and stuff, like as if he was on the permanent MDMA or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I mean there, there could be some kind of like actual examples of like the testimony of people who observed his behavior. And then in addition, I think what's relevant about your question, maybe we should clarify for your audience because they won't know what happened. At the talk. So it's mm -hmm. true that in, in Shankara's system, Brahman is nirguna, without qualities. And in Ramanuja's system, Brahman is saguna, with qualities. 
So if Brahman is near guna, without qualities, then what does it mean to say that Brahman is Satchit Ananda, where Ananda is bliss, and bliss seems like a quality? Okay, so, so what I said was this, and I'll, I'll unpack it. This is a way of trying, again, this is a way of trying to understand it in the in language, so analogies are the best I can do here. So one way I think about it is that there's a color that a canvas has, and the color that the canvas has is white or off-white, let's say, okay? But clearly the purpose of the canvas is such that other paint, other things are supposed to come upon it, and that is what's really the painting. The canvas's color is irrelevant in a way. By analogy, the quality of Brahman is Ananda, which, by the way, is not happiness, which is a phenomenal state that we instantiate, but is this is a bliss in a spiritual sense. Like okay. You should not think that bliss, as Ananda applied to Brahman, is like you know you being like super happy. That's like not the way mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. what Ananda is. But um, so what happens is this: is that the the as you strip away the layers of paint, the canvas is revealed to be off-white. As you strip away the illusory experience and identify as one with the ultimate Brahman, it's fundamental, what's revealed is just pure bliss, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's the way, I, that's, that was what I was, was telling you, and that's the response I typically give. It is literally in the literature on this view that there is this kind of contradiction that like, oh, it's supposed to be quality, unless it seems like to be a quality I, I do think that that is a problem for Shankara. I'm not a big fan of all the moves he makes. But I do think that this way of explaining what might be going on works. And also, it, it works well with the idea that in the subject-object structure of experience, we're going to have a very hard time explaining what this is like. And that's why it's ineffable. So yeah, nicely. Yeah, you've sort of sort of set up a way in which we can see Sukha dukkha understood in a, maybe like a more classical Buddhist framework as involving this clinging that always leads eventually to more suffering. And so yeah, that's like, and then this other system where it's different. But again, to answer the basic question, I think there are ways in which it's different from the kind of way in which we use suffering in ordinary English. And so maybe the last thing I'll say about this before we move to the other question is this. In my own recent work, uh, when I'm going to, like, for example, Hong Kong to present stuff on machine emotions and the moral grounding problem, I have uh, argued that there is a different type of suffering in English, and that's called cognitive suffering. Cognitive suffering occurs when there is no phenomenal suffering, but there is a suboptimal satisfaction of preferences. So my view is that we can properly say uh, an artificial system or a creature, like an amoeba, or a plant, that it is cognitively suffering when its preferences aren't satisfied, and in virtue of its preferences not being satisfied, there's a clear sense in which it could it would be better off if its preferences were satisfied. So the example I oftentimes use are these little creatures where they need to be in oxygen-rich water in order to survive. And they use uh, a detector for magnetic north and south in order to find the oxygen-rich water. So if I put like a, a dummy magnet over it, I could like pull it down into like 
this horrible environment, <laughs> right? But if I let it do its own thing with the regular you know, polarity, it'll find its way to the right thing. Now, these are very rudimentary creatures. They're organisms, but I don't think that it's really clear that they're phenomenally conscious. But it's clear to me that things would be better off if they were an oxygen-rich environment than were they to be a non-oxygen-rich environment in terms of their continued survival. So I would say that they are cognitively suffering. And what I mean by that is that there are clear preferences that are there for how their system functions, which would be satisfied in one environment as opposed to another one. And this cuts against the English notion of suffering, where people say, in order to suffer, you must have some feeling of pain. That's what it means in English. And I think that even if it does mean that, there's a very clear notion of suffering in English where we would say, even if the person is having sort of hedonic pleasure, they're suffering. This is oftentimes what we say of many drug addicts, right? In fact, the analysis with Buddhism is actually pretty clear. Being high on drugs just means you're going to have a clinging and attachment to wanting more, of which you're going to suffer more because objectively your body is not functioning properly, right? So that same notion that we do there, I think just leads to the idea that there's a very serviceable notion in English of cognitive suffering, and I think it can be applied to machines for which there is no phenomenal consciousness, but there are states of the machine for which it is functioning better than it would be in another environment, right? So, that, so let's close the... Uh, the the suffering one, but I think that you can see like like I would definitely say like not only in English is there a different way to do it, but there are different ones in the other. Okay, so now on to Dan Dennett. Okay, so okay, so I don't know this Dan Dennett argument. So let's, sure. but I do know I do know what 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 is going on here yeah. in terms of the fact that like there are two things going on in the Mary thought experiment. One is that she is supposed to know all of the facts about um, color vision in red with respect to all, actually all colors, red in particular. She's supposed to know in particular like what typical objects are red, like tomatoes and fire trucks are red. What is the, you know, sort of properties in terms of wavelength reflections mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. environments to make scarlet versus red, this, you know, all the different colors. Uh, and, and she's a sighted person, right? So, but she's just grown up in a room that's black and white. Ah, uh, okay, right. Right. So, so, so because she's grown up and been, you know, it's like like some evil sure. know, IRB problem. <laughs> Institutional Review Board would never approve Barry's mm-hmm. imprisonment. But yeah, so she's she just studies all this color vision stuff, and um, you know, and then the question is, she, if it just amounted to knowing all these facts, then when she sees red, she should learn nothing new. But clearly everyone has the intuition that when she's allowed to leave the room and sees a tomato, she learns what it's like to see red, right? So that's the, so all the physical facts don't suffice for all the facts. So I think the way I used to, I used to have a nice way of presenting this, it's that um, all the physical facts don't suffice for all the facts about red because the phenomenal fact of what it's like to see red is not entailed by all of the physical facts. Yeah, that's basically what the experiment... And actually, most people... This is a great, you know, thought experiment. I have no problem crediting Frank Jackson for wonderful work. 
I think it's in Bertrand Russell before, though, where he talks about a blind man can know everything about. Mm. <laughs> but clearly, the blind man doesn't know what it's like to see, you know, green or something like that. And, and that's yeah. even a, a quicker and easier way to say it. Like, could it, a super smart blind mm. person just they literally study everything and be able yeah. to be like, yeah, tell me what's going on. But, but obviously they're missing something. What are they missing? What it's like to see red. So now the Jackson thought experiment just inverts it by saying, well, she can see, but she's grown up in an environment where she's been deprived of this, but she can't derive it from everything yes. else. So what it sounded like to me, you were saying is that in this version that Dan Dennett explores, he says, well, actually it's incorrect to say that she has all the physical facts. In fact, if she had all the physical facts, she can come to derive what it's like to see red. That sounds like the move that's being done. And there is, so for example, this thought experiment has been so heavily studied and debated that there are many, many different um, variants going about it. What? Oh, never mind. There are lots of different ways of uh, of approaching it. So one thing is that, well, um, she does know what it's like to see red. She just doesn't know what it's like to see red under this description, right? So there's the, 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 the redness mode of presentation, mm-hmm. right? But she actually does know what it's like to see red. So this, there's this move about like, well, what is the kind of fact that she doesn't know and what level does it sit at, right? So there's lots so of, it could easily be operating in the space of saying one of these things. Okay, so in general, without getting into the details of what he specifically says, because as I said, I don't know, um, I think the standard line for me and where I stand on this is in, a, in agreement that um, I, I don't think phenomenal facts can be known absent access to phenomenal properties, right? So if you're not in contact with phenomenal properties, then you don't know the what it's like thing. Mm. But it is it is still consistent to say along with that that there's a bunch of things you do know that could make it the case that your behavior is indiscernible from someone that does see phenomenal red. Like I can't think of the red thought experiment right now, but I would say that I understand. My view probably goes much closer to wanting to say that what's being done in these kinds of arguments is that we're isolating the phenomenal property. And then I'm going to concede that like, yeah, like if you, if you don't have contact with it, you don't know what it's like to see it. But I'm also going to say that that doesn't mean that your behavioral tendencies are going to be completely impoverished. Uh, there could be other ways of engaging in the behavior that's appropriate for when someone sees red, given a society that attributes certain actions to red-like behavior or whatever. Yeah, I would, I would think that that's closer um, to where I would go. One thing I would think that Dennett's argument probably doesn't do and this might be the thing where like if he does do this i'd be like okay that was <laughs> i don't think it's the argument that says that if you give them more information somehow by thinking and reflecting on the information the qualia appears in your mind that i don't think is what's going on right so there would some people could say hey mary does have phenomenal qualia phenomenal qualia she doesn't have she hears auditory sounds, by the way, in the room, right? So she she has, like, you can understand, Mary does, is not phenomenally deprived. She's on a sensory deprivation chamber, right? She's just not in a place where there's color, right? So a person could try to argue that if you feed more information, there's a way in which they can use through reflection and the phenomenal qualities 
that they have an inkling of what it's like to see red. So for example, she sees edges, she sees shapes, she sees black and white. She knows that the color red is in the color spectrum. She knows what those those things are. So if you can imagine and you are vision and your imagination is rich, you might be able to come to an inkling of what it's like yeah. to see red. And maybe one way to think about this is a very famous example from David Hume. You take a color wheel with uh, shades of blue, and then all of a sudden we just cut one shade of blue in the color wheel. Let's say it's going from like light blue towards like purple, let's say, and we cut one at, at exactly 50% of the way there. And then he asked, well, can you come up with the missing shade of blue? This is like, I can't remember whether he's trying to argue against this or for this, but he, I think he's trying to say you can come up with it. Sure. And, and we, can th- we can think that this is something that like Mary might be able to do, although it's hard because the difference between seeing and hearing and seeing in black and white and in gray, which could be derived from black and white, seems to be a big leap to get to red, but... This is a kind I don't think that that would be the argument that Dennett is talking about because I don't think Dennett puts much weight on qualia in the first place. In some mm-hmm. sense, he is actually the premier illusionist of all kinds. Probably what he's putting weight in is the fact that there's a bunch of things that are associated with redness that have to do with behavior. And those things are things that someone who has this much information can successfully carry out. You know, yeah. Of, okay. So that's my take on that. Sure. I don't know much about that. Whatever. Sure. <laughs> Got it. Chomsky. Yeah. So the, the Chomsky thing, actually, I do know a lot about. That was really interesting that you brought that up because I actually studied with the leading externalists in philosophy of language for eight years. I did my undergraduate education and my graduate education with the pioneers of what is known as semantic externalism, hmm. which is precisely what you're kind of pushing Wonderful. against in Chomsky's voice. So I have much more to say about the river example, which is in fact um, a direct uh, um, kind of riff on uh, Saul Kripke's example of the river Dart for Dartmouth in the beginning of Naming and Necessity, his lecture from 1971. So I don't think if Chomsky gave you that example, that isn't an accident at all. Yeah. The river example actually is what Saul Kripke is actually talking about in his lectures. It's one of the most famous um, examples and discussion pieces in all of philosophy of language in the 20th century. It's the very famous, the river example. He begins his the, the lectures that way. And so I think it's interesting to talk about this thesis because I'm wholeheartedly a semantic externalist. I, I, I don't even think unless... We get more details on the table, what is actually being said. So I think, like, is it the case that, in your opinion, what's going on here is that we're never referring to things out in the world? Because if that's the thesis, I just think that's just inconsistent with my core commitments in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. It's my understanding, Chomsky says, that most of the time we're not referring to external and that outside of science, it's 99% of the time that we're not. And we had to painfully develop science to refer to the external world. And it uses even a different structure than the way that we have sentences, so formal systems. Wow. Okay, 
So I think most of the time we are referring to the external world, whether or not the way in which we return refer to the external world is via something that is a representation that is internally accessible to us. Let me put so an I, asterisk on that. I think Chomsky would say that we think we're referring to the external world and we're attempting to, but what we're actually referring to is within mind or something mind-like. Right. So maybe we should do this like by using a distinction that's helpful between direct and indirect reference. So I can say that I refer, I use the word Kurt and Kurt refers to Kurt in the world, but it doesn't do it directly. It does it in terms of a representation mm. or a way of thinking that's particular to me in my mind that then picks out uh, Kurt. And uh, and then there's another one that says, no, I mean, when I use the word Kurt, given how I learned the word Kurt, it's the case that Kurt refers to you in the world. It doesn't refer via anything in my mind. It might be true that I also have all these beliefs about Kurt, you know, mm -hmm. there's a canon and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. it's not finding its way to Kurt through those things. Right. So Kripke is a proponent of what's known as direct reference theory. It's a one way of uh -huh. like, so... Like, so there was a huge debate for like a, a huge tradition, like starting with Frege and Russell, going through the works of Cyril and Strawson, and we call them description theory. And, and the idea was that each speaker has associated with a given name, such as Kurt Aronin, a set of descriptions. And if you want to know what they mean when they use that word, just look at the descriptions that are in their mind. And then whatever those things pick out, that's what the word refers to. Right. This okay. is the indirect route. Right. The idea is that in some, I think I can't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Russell. But under this view, names like Kurt and Anin are just abbreviations for longer descriptions, mm, okay. which are sets of uh, descriptions of the person who lives in Toronto, who met Susan, who on this day did that. Those are all in my. So when I say Kurt, I just mean this assemblage of descriptions in my mind. It's a shorthand. Yeah, right, abbreviation. So I think that was more associated with Russell than it was with Frege. And then other people came along later on. They say, no, it's not just a description. It's like a weighted cluster. Like there's a bunch of descriptions in there. And then some of them I'll be like, oh, if this doesn't turn out to be right, then, I, then I'm not referring to Kurt. And like, you know, it, it's got to be that Kurt is living in Toronto, that Kurt is a podcaster, that's secondary. Or or maybe I'm the person who says, Kurt's got to be a podcaster. I don't care where he lives. Maybe it was wrong about where he lives, but my term Kurt doesn't refer to anyone who isn't a podcaster. And so there's like a weighting, like a probability oh, distribution. Uh -huh. okay, okay. Like, I'm referring to this as long as this one is maximally satisfied. I think this was the, the weighted cluster conception that was kind of discussed by um, uh, uh, Kripke, but is found in the work of maybe... Sure in rudimentary form, Cyril and Strawson. So Kripke refuted all of these views, in my opinion. Okay. Like he took them down in 1971 pretty cleanly between the early part of January and the end of January. So and most people in the tradition I study with think that that is correct. So what is so on, on my view, um, we are referring to reality. And in fact, it's even worse than that because I'm a pretty <laughs> strong externalist. I think it's that it's in virtue of the fact that we're in contact with objects in our environment that we are referring at all. Referring is not something that's primarily about anything in the mind. That's just, it's that's backward. As a consumer of language and a producer of language, 
my uh, goals with reference are to get things uh, in my environment that are part of my community onto those things, not things in my mind. I don't need them to think about what's in my mind. I need them to see that by lion, don't be thinking about what's in my mind. Think about what's out there, the common object. It's something that's a predator for us, so we need to run. So I think it's because of my realism that I think, yes, reference is about getting onto things in the world primarily. And secondarily, there's a practice of referring to episodic experiences like i can refer to like i had this dream last night well clearly i'm referring to what's in my head at that point. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. so I, I think that's right so I, i'm not sure my impression is that probably you know when 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 he articulated this chomsky might have been saying that in fact the the revolution in semantic externalism is partly mistaken but there are lots of ways to see the mistake so for example david chalmers does think that there is a correction that um, Saul Kripke's view should undergo, and that's by distinguishing between primary and secondary intentions and meaning and doing what's called epistemic two-dimensional semantics. So you can be revisionary. You can think, okay, direct. So one of my teachers, Nathan Salmon, who was my dissertation advisor, is like one of the key proponents of direct reference theory, right? Where like, you know, know, it's just the the descriptive Mm -hmm. content and all that stuff is just not playing any semantic role it could be playing a pragmatic role that's a different aspect of language that has to do with communication uh but it's not playing any semantic role like the the names are directly referential they're tags or millionism is sometimes called the tag view kurt tags this particular thing i learned this use of the word kurt by interacting with you when i was introduced to you through Susan, that makes the ch- the causal chain and chain in my mind that leads back to you. My use of Kurt is about you because it's a causal chain directly going from you to my mind. It's about a causal theory of reference. Okay. That's basically the view Kripke announces. But it's okay for someone to say that I accept that we are referring to external things in the world, but I deny uh, the thesis that it's direct as much as the degree to which some proponents of millionism, the tag theory or the causal theory of reference, think it's direct. Uh, I think it's a little bit more indirect, or at least that there's this other way that things go on. And it wouldn't surprise me if um, Chomsky is also sympathetic to the idea that sometimes, I guess what I what I'm thinking is is I can't I can't sort of sort of get my head around is when I say Kurt, mm-hmm. uh, let's say. Your wife says Kurt. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take two clues. It's very good. This is a classic example from Locke, I think, actually. Um, so when I say Kurt, I'm referring to the descriptions in my mind. And when your wife says Kurt, she's referring to the descriptions in her mind. Like, as opposed to we're both referring to you, but what we associate with the word are two different sets of descriptions because we learn about you in totally different contexts and we have a different mm-hmm. relationship with you. So I'm more inclined to say the second one accurately describes the behavior of, of human beings and how we actually learn language and, and how, oh, sorry, in particular proper names for objects in our environment is that we associate things with them and that's completely natural because we have different experiences with the things and beliefs about the things, but the 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 proper names are are to refer to these things and not to 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 just get us back into our head. Otherwise, if we all come to believe this, then when I'm talking 
to your wife, she's like, yeah, interesting. Like, uh, you have these, you know, they're referring to your, your brain and she's referring to her brain. <laughs> so that, okay, okay. So that's, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I think, A, let me clarify, it's okay to maybe not go in for the strong, directly referential when you say, Kurt, you're referring mm-hmm, to this mm-hmm. And you think that something else is going on. I think that's okay. But I think I prefer to describe it by saying that, no, when you use the name, there's a causal link that takes that name to the person. And it's true also that you associate things with that person, maybe via thinking about the name too. But that doesn't mean that the name is referring to those thoughts as opposed to the person. And those thoughts are about the person also. Yes. Okay, good. So, yeah. So briefly, you might want to know what is the distinction between one-dimensional semantics and two-dimensional modal semantics concerning uh, names and uh, kind terms. Uh-huh. So, so um, the classic example to be discussed is uh, the example that um, water equals H2O. So water is a common general term for a substance in our world. H2O is a chemical term for a compound that captures a substance in our world. And it was an empirical discovery that what we meant by water in the common term is identical to mm-hmm. H2O. Now, first of all, before we go further into the actual difference between the two views, nothing I'm saying depends on whether or not it's true that water equals H2O. Like there's some people who get really hung up on the fact that actually in chemistry, it's not true that there are these pure samples of water and water equals H2O. So, all we're saying, we're talking about a common yes. term yes, yes. In a language and a theoretical identification. That's the important thing that's at stake. Okay. So Kripke thinks that basically it's necessary that water equals H2O. And the reason why he thinks it's necessary and a posteriori is because water, the word water, is a rigid designator that picks out the same substance in every possible world. Okay. okay? So there's like a the range of possible yeah. worlds. Okay. And water, as used by human beings on Earth, were part of the practice of using this term of water that turned out to be H2O, are using it as a rigid designator. They don't mean the word to change depending on what possible world we're in. So water is a rigid designator, and H2O is a rigid designator. And the definition of a rigid designator is a term that does not change its reference depending on what world we're evaluating it in. So if we now imagine a set of possible worlds, W1 through W6, mm-hmm. water refers in that world, and H2O refers in that world, in those worlds, only if, what well, say, water and H2O are present, the things that are here. And also, as long as there's worlds in which water is H2O, and maybe some worlds where water doesn't exist, we can say that it's necessarily true that water is H2O because either it exists in the world or it doesn't. And if it exists in the world, then it's identical because of the way we're using it here on Earth, or it doesn't exist. So in all worlds in which there is reference, water is picking something out and that thing is H2O, it's going to be true. Yes. So it's necessary that water equals H2O because it's true in all possible worlds in which water and H2O refer. 
And in addition, we discovered this a posteriori because we couldn't figure out water was H2O a priori. So this was a magnificent major moment in the history of philosophy in the 20th century that there are truths that are necessary and a posteriori because it destroys the Kantian thesis that what is necessary is a priori. Okay, so Kant famously made the claim the necessity and a priori are related to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Kripke destroyed that thesis by showing that there are truths that are a posteriori that are necessary. Now, the difference between Dave's view and Saul's view comes from kind of like there's a relationship to this Chomsky discussion. So I want to say that there's a relationship to the Chomsky discussion, but it's more connected to two different um, aspects. So we're going to say that water is the name. And associated with it is a definite description, okay? And what is that definite description? The local potable liquid that flows in 60% of, mm-hmm, sorry, mm-hmm, it flows mm-hmm, in all the rivers mm-hmm, and covers mm-hmm. 60 to 70% of the earth, quenches thirst, is, you know, the thing that is mo- in most of our bodies. It's like a description of the characteristics of water as we use the word. Right? Yes, yes. So as we use the word as consumers of water, we do have a common description that is associated with it. And so we'll just suppose we can call that D1. Sure. Okay. So David's view is that when we evaluate a possible world, we can evaluate it in two dimensions. We can evaluate it with respect to its primary intention and its secondary intention. Okay. Okay. When you evaluate water is H2O, according to its secondary intention, you get the exact same result that Saul Kripke gave us. The result that water equals H2O, and it's necessary because water's a rigid designator, H2O is a rigid designator, and that's they're identical in the actual world, so they're identical in every world in which they both refer. But Kripke doesn't have what's known as a primary intention. And the primary intention in David's view, roughly for this example, is just D. It's this description. So if we go to another possible world, yes, yeah. and we ask what is picked out by description D, the local potable liquid that fills up 60% of the planet's surfaces in most bodies and is yeah. also drinkable and stuff like that, and it turns out that over there it's XYZ or WRT, then it turns out in that world that water picks out, or water is equal to X, Y, Z, okay? So that result, so on David's view, it's primary possible that water equals X, Y, Z, although it's secondarily impossible that water equals X, Y, Z. It's secondarily necessary that water equals H2O, but it's primary possible that uh, water equals X, Y, Z. So the idea, uh, and actually, I spent my dissertation in six years of my life working on this theory to understand it. It's it's a really fun mathematical theory, but <laughs> you got to really wrap your head around some deep modal logic to get this stuff going. Yeah, right? it's, it's yeah. There's a lot of moving parts to the actual theory, but I'm simplifying a lot of ways just to make clear what the differences in the results are. But the thing is, like, there are two ways to look at a possible world. And this was a great insight that Dave had. I, th- I really liked this thing. You can look at a possible world from the perspective 
of it being the actual world, or you can look at it from the perspective of it being a counterfactual world. So Kripke's analysis is all counterfactual. Earth is the actual world, and on Earth, water equals H2O. And these words are rigid designators. So in every other possible world, considered from the perspective of the Earth as an actual world, water equals H2O, and if there's anything else there, X, Y, Z, and no H2O, then water doesn't refer in that world. Okay? In Dave's view, though, we can look at the world from two perspectives. We can say, what if this world where there's X, Y, Z is the actual world? In this world, if X, Y, Z satisfies the description of the local potable liquid, the blah, 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 mm-hmm. then we must be rationally compelled to the conclusion that on this planet, water refers to X, Y, Z. Why are we rationally compelled? Because the hypothesis is that this information set is the actual world. And now we're looking at the word water relative to what it would refer to given this information set. And that, so it's basically almost like a Bayesian calculation. Basically, you're like, okay, given that the description D is associated with water and this is the information, the probability of what's going to be uh, the referent of water is going to be X, Y, Z, because X, Y, Z satisfies the description, right? Okay, so there's actual world evaluation and counterfactual world evaluation. Actual world goes along with the primary intention, okay? Counterfactual goes along with the secondary intention. Interesting. And so the jet, yeah, so this is what, it's actually, there's like a lot of cool mathematical things to learn. It's called floating point semantics sometimes. You know, uh, there's this other guy, Pavel Tichy, who came before Dave, who did some really excellent work on this. It's related to David Kaplan's work on demonstratives. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cool stuff that's going on here. I mean, when I was growing up, in like grad school, like this is like all technical philosophy of language, philosophy of logic stuff that we talk about. It's really fascinating and stuff. But his real insight was to give this nice little epistemic interpretation. I mean, two-dimensional semantics using modality was already there, but the epistemic interpretation is unique to Dave because he's talking about the fact that you can have an actual world evaluation and a counterfactual world. And on based on this, you can actually say it's possible that water equals xyz because it's conceivable that water equals xyz how is it conceivable that water equals xyz well consider this possible world as actual and take the primary intention of water equal to description d Mm -hmm. d is this long description and what is the probability of xyz satisfying d in this world it's 100 percent. so we're rationally compelled to then conclude that water is xyz so it's conceivable on the primary intention analysis that water equals X, Y, Z on W3. Therefore, W3 is a witness to the fact that it's uh, there's a possible world in which uh, water is X, Y, Z. So it's primarily possible that water equals X, Y, Z. So, we're, so sometimes people say that in Dave's view, what's going on is that there are one space of worlds and two intentions to look at the worlds at. I can look at it as this is the actual world, or I can look at it as this is the counterfactual world. If I look at it at the actual world, I'm taking the information set into itself. If I look at a counterfactual, I'm looking at relative to another world. Uh, I'm saying okay. W1 okay. relative to W2. And in the other, in the actual world, I'm saying W1 taken as W1 into itself. Yeah. So he's one space of worlds. Uh, this is actually called the thesis of uh, modal monism. There's only one space of possible worlds. 
but there's two intentions. The opposing view is that there are multiple stations of possible worlds and one intention, right? So that's the view that says that... Sorry, the first one was called what? Modal realism? Modal monism? Monism, monism. Modal realism is a separate thesis I can explain if you want, but modal monism is a thesis that there is one space of possible worlds, and then you can add to that the thesis that there are two or more intentions for evaluating any sentence across the space of possible worlds. Uh, Dave takes two intentions. Uh, And then you can have this other view that says, no, there are two different spaces of possible worlds. There are the one or multiple. Sometimes called the onion model. There's the physically possible worlds, the metaphysically possible worlds, and the logically possible worlds. And these form a proper subset relations, um, right? But they're all, there's all this this one like space, Mm -hmm, but they're mm -hmm. all, they're, they're like, like the metaphysically possible worlds and the logically possible worlds aren't the same on this model. That's called modal dualism. And um, yeah, so so that's kind of the difference. So I would say Kripke advanced a one-dimensional semantics that used counterfactual evaluation. And he also, in some sense, gestured at modal dualism. And after his work, people who were working in metaphysics heavily were interested in whether what what kind of modal dualism or modal pluralism followed metaphysically from the theory he had advocated? So there's a big debate on that. So just to clarify one distinction, the last thing you said, modal realism is the thesis that possible worlds are real entities of some mm-hmm, kind. Mm-hmm, there are two, right. th- two versions of this. So one version is the Lewisian thesis, which says that possible worlds are concrete particulars just like our universe. And the only difference between any two possible worlds is basically the individuals that inhabit them and the fact that they're uh, spatially and temporally not related to one another, so there's no causal relationship mm-hmm. between any two possible worlds. So, the, But they're, they're real, just as this is real. Okay, And then um, the other version of modal realism is the set-theoretic universe account, which holds that basically... A possible world is a certain kind of set. It's a set of sentences that's uh, maximal with respect to every other property. So you, you so basically you use a proof. You use this thing called uh, 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 Lindenbaum's lemma from Metalogic that shows for any consistent set you can build a maximally consistent set by ordering the propositions and then going relative to the initial set is it consistent is it not throw it in if it's consistent mm-hmm. put it in if it's in, it's throw it out goes yeah, and yeah. it blows real off so it's Lindenbaum's lemma very important proof for doing the compactness proof and um and metalogic right uh, but it's applied in the work of Alvin Plantinga to explain the theory of uh, modal realism in terms of Sets, so there's an infinite plurality of sets of maximal consistent sets, and possible worlds are these sets of sentences, and the actual world is different from the possible worlds because it's concrete. <laughs> it's not just a set of sentences, it's a set of sentences that obtains, mm-hmm. right? And that's a very different view than Lewis's view, where what makes two possible worlds different uh, in terms of actuality is just that when we say actuality here, we're referring to our world. And when they say actuality, they're referring to their world. Just as when you say I, you refer to you. And when I say I, I refer right. to me. Yeah. Okay. So those are the, the, the main distinctions that are going on. So uh, Dave is a modal realist, I believe. Uh, so uh-huh. and a monist. Just, and a modal monist. Monist and, and a realist of a certain, at least a moderate modal realist. He's a modal rationalist. 
modal monist and a moderate modal realist. Okay, so we have a plurality of descriptions, different definitions. And in our world, they all refer to the same object, but I can imagine that in different worlds, each one of them could refer to something else. So given that Dave says that there's a secondary intention based on a description, well, based on which description? To me, it sounds like as soon as you open up a secondary intention, you open up a plethora of definitions. So a plethora okay, of descriptions. Good. So let's get let's let's work through this carefully to show two results on the side. Um, okay. So and and this is kind of even in the echoes of like a lot of what Kripke argued about when he said that he didn't really think the definite description view was even an accurate description of human mental life. Like people don't really have definite description. So like I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on this example, like Joan of Arc. Like, so uh, my friend goes to class one day and falls asleep in French history class. And a bunch of stuff about Joan of Arc is said. And then I come like, Oh, what'd you learn in you know French history class? And she says to me, I learned about Joan of Arc. I'm like, well, what did you learn? She's like, I don't remember anything. So is it going to be the case that when my friend said Joan of Arc, her uh, utterance had no reference because she didn't get a description of any kind in her mind? Or even suppose she said, I learned that it's the ice cream parlor across the street. Um, Now, given that she learned Joan of Arc in a classroom from a history professor who was teaching it to her, we should say her utterance is caused by the utterance of the teacher. And whatever the teacher is referring to is the best explanation of what she's talking about, okay? Because that's the only thing, only source. It's not like she has another competing source for Joan of Arc. So one of the things that Kripke was trying to point to, I think to the, that's really kind of important here is that is it actually true that we all have substantive descriptions for all of the terms that we use? Like there's a lot of terms that we know how to use and people would say that's a correct use or utterance of the word for which we don't really have much we can. And my other favorite example is what's a transistor? I'm pretty sure that there's something called a transistor radio. But unlike my wife, who knows a lot about you know um, electrical engineering can explain what a transistor is and a capacitor is, but I'm lost. I don't know what a transistor is. Am I not referring to transistor radios? No, mm-hmm. I'm clearly referring to transistor radios because I learned it from people who defined these things and talked about them. So... There's this kind of phenomenon that uh, you know Hillary Putnam and Gareth Evans talked about, who were you know contemporaries of Kripke, called the semantic division of labor. That you know different people are producers of terms, and then we all consume them in a causal network where we learn from each other. So when Dave introduces this idea of saying, well, we can take a primary intention analysis, and a way to understand that is by thinking that a given description that's associated with a term like water is going to be now used instead of water itself because it's a case in which we're considering the world as actual. I think all that's meant to be done there is to show us that there is a different kind of evaluation, right? There's an evaluation that does not take the semantic content at the actual world, but instead uses a descriptive device to go help us find what's in another world, right? So it's like asking... Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. We know that water is H2O here. But given how we found water over here by thinking about this description and then investigating it, 
What if we use that description in another possible world? Uh, what would we have to say is the thing that is picked out mm-hmm. by that? So now we introduce the idea, well, hey, what if we switch from the local potable thing to every sports player's favorite drink after a basketball game? Right, right, sure. Basketball, yeah. Right. Okay, well, maybe it turns out that on this planet there are no basketball players. So it turns out that that, that description doesn't lead to any discovery whatsoever. Right. So we can have a plurality of descriptions. We can acknowledge that there is a relativity to our answers and there's a plurality of descriptions without in any sense violating the insight of the model. Because the model is saying that there's a dependency relation based on going primary versus secondary. And in addition, it's relativized to the description we're using. Uh, But the fact that there are other descriptions we could be using doesn't invalidate the model it just means that there will be different results given different inputs, right? So it's just like, it's saying that there's two functions we can use to analyze, analyze things. And now if you tell me that one of the functions has a different range of inputs than the other one, uh, that's just, I think. So I don't know the technical thing about what he might say about why we don't suffer from a relativity of descriptions. That's a good question, Kurt. I'll probably ask him next time I see him. But but I do think that... that, that um, it, to me, it wouldn't. I wouldn't be worried if I was him. I'd be just like, yeah, that's fine. That's exactly what my theory should allow for. It should say, <laughs> when mm. we went to the primary intention, what we were looking at was some kind of description that guides our seeking behavior. Clearly, there are different descriptions that we can associate with it. But it, it does turn out that even if you know Kripke is right that most people don't have these descriptions in their mind, or they have very different ones in their mind based on how they learned something, that when it comes to certain kinds of concepts, there's established communities that are identifying um, causal roles associated with a given thing. So remember, a lot of this debate was not about um, common terms that don't play a role in what's known as theoretical identification. We want to know what light is. We want to know what heat is. We want to know what water is. We're looking to theoretically understand. So this is why the Chomsky thing you were saying about learning about science and that doing something, that's why that's relevant, I would think, because in fact, Kripke was talking about that. He was talking about um, theoretical identifications towards, uh, I think, two and three, lectures two and three. So I think it's that is what's going on. Now, if you say to me that the, what, the, 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 the dominant descriptions that control investigation of theoretical kinds like boson fermion uh, are so open to wide variation the way in which um, something like, you know, Kurt might be, I'd be a little bit shocked. Yeah. I I would think that there's a little bit more agreement. So in that sense, I think that we can, that there's a way in saying, well, the model is open to the plurality of descriptions that could be used in a primary intention analysis, but, 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 and, and it would be relativized to the results of each of those. That doesn't invalidate the model. But by the way, it also turns out to be the case that concerning theoretical identifications for common uh, kind for common terms for uh, uh, these kinds of scientific kinds like tiger and things yes. like that, there is more or less something that is in common that we would want to do the analysis. We would want to know, given the description of tigers here. Uh, that we used actually to discover uh, what the underlying nature of tigers are. What happens if we go to this other planet? What are we rationally led to conclude uh, in uh, this other possible world? 
Yeah. Even in Kripke's definition, primary definition of water is H2O. This brings. Okay, so don't say primary. No, no. So, so he doesn't have the. He doesn't use primary and secondary. So like all he's saying is that uh, water equals H2O is true, and we discovered that a posteriori. And I guess if you want to say definition, you could say that what defines water is. Being H2O. Yeah, that might be acceptable. Okay. Yeah. So Kripke would say that what defines water is H2O and that that can pick out water in different worlds. Does that not presume that the laws of physics are the same in other worlds? And when I was looking at your modality distinctions, there's this hierarchy yeah. where you have the physical world and you have the metaphysical world outside of that. So physics is nested in metaphysics and metaphysics is nested in logic. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me if all of these are possible worlds, let's imagine that you can even view yeah. that set, the supersets as different worlds. What Kripke is saying is even a subset of physics, the set of physics that is the same as us, which is the set of physics of all possible physics, which is within the set of metaphysics, which is within the set of logic. Yeah, so this is this is extremely relevant. This is actually what I spent... This is This is the kind of stuff that I sort of, when I was 22 to 26, would think about like every day for like years on end. Like I, I spent all of my time working on this kind of thing because a lot of what's going on here, Kurt, is that Kripke sort of introduced us to the idea that there might be a partition between the space of possible worlds defined as having the same laws of physics as we have in the actual world and those possible worlds defined by obeying some logical systems such as first-order classical logic. And he introduced this idea by telling us that there's something called the space of metaphysically possible worlds, which is such that certain metaphysical laws, he didn't say the word metaphysical laws, but Mm -hmm, certain metaphysical laws obtain, but there are variation in physical laws. What does it mean for a law to obtain? Um... It's a good question. I mean, I don't really do a lot of like... um, I don't think about it in terms of obtaining in like the philosophy of science or what people mean when they say a law of physics obtains. I think probably what I just mean is that it's the one that's governing, right? So if um, okay, so governed say, by, it, yeah, I got governed, it. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. So I think the, the way I mean, so this is where like my sort of uh, mathematical logic-y way of understanding things comes out. I, I literally have more of like, okay, well, there's a theory, T. Mm-hmm. And T has a set of theorems and axioms, and those exhaustively codify uh, you know, some specific version of quantum mechanics. And when I say that this range of possible worlds is physically possible, I just mean that that T governs what holds in terms of physical possibility in those worlds, right? So one of the first papers I wrote was not about this one, but about logical possibility. I said, well, you can say the logical possibility is constructed out of paraconsistent logic. You can mm-hmm. say it's constructed out of intuitionistic logic. You can say it's constructed out of first-order classical logic. I mean, there's lots of different ways. So example, you know, if you're building maximal consistent sets, you can use different relations to build those things. Those entities can be constructed. There's lots of ways to construct them. And so if you think that possible worlds are just these abstract objects that are real and concrete in a sense, sorry, real and particular, not concrete, but they're abstract, um, then you can, we can talk about them 
in terms of a really important, you know, set builder relation or like Mac, like a logical relation. So I would say the same thing. I mean, if you can tell me two different theories of physics, string theory and, you know, like many worlds interpretation, and that those two things have very different, you know, fundamental things that they say as part of the core of their theory, then I can say that this set of possible worlds is physically possible in virtue of the fact that it satisfies T for string theory number one. And uh-huh. this one satisfies the many worlds interpretation. Yes. And right. And so I, I just, I'm, I'm basically labeling these spaces based on what theory they are basically yes. uh, consistent with or, or satisfying. Yeah. That's what, 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 what we mean. Now, the, the, the part of your question that is like on everybody's mind and like Dave spent a lot of time doing amazing work in this area along with other people before him is that there is this uh, post Kripkean tendency to either inflate or deflate. So let me explain that. So inflation takes it the case that the physically possible worlds inflate to the metaphysically possible worlds. So that what happens is that there is no notion of metaphysical possibility that just isn't physical possibility. And that idea is just the idea that there really are no metaphysical laws that aren't physical laws. Like all we're talking about is that physical possibility just is metaphysical. And actually Kripke had a sentence, I believe it's in lecture three towards the end of the book where he said it might turn out to be the case that physical possibility is a possibility to core. I think that's the actual meaning that core two core meaning like it's it's the absolute one like that's the one that so i think the idea is for me as i read it back then was just that physical possibility might just turn out to be what metaphysical possibility is there's nothing more to talk about metaphysical possibility other than physical possibility so once you have your correct physical theory let's say it's many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics plus whatever you need to do other fancy things then you just know that all the metaphysically possible worlds are just the ones that are consistent with that theory in physics. Would it be all right if you gave an example of what someone would think this is a metaphysically possible world, but it's not a physically possible one so that they oh, can yeah. see the uh, distinction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So this I've been because I'm a proponent of the distinction, I've been asked this question several times by people <laughs> okay. who Great. have tried to to um, to push me on it and um, to make you an inflationist. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. In one way or the other, I didn't explain deflationism, but I'll give you the example anyway in the beginning. So, um, you know, I always forget the name of this person. I feel so bad if he published this paper in a very famous journal, the Journal of Philosophy, um, and it has to do with something in physics, actually. But um, the example, as I remember, is that um, there's a certain kind of particle decay where what happens is that the particle spins either lift, left or right. And mathematically, everything is equivalent. It could just spin the other yes, way. Yes, yes, yes. Right? And so the, what the idea is is that there's a, a metaphysically possible world where all the mathematical things are exactly the same as it spins in the physically possible worlds consistent with our physics, but it just spins the other way. That's the, right, that's the right, actual. Right. And I think that is probably the least investigated example uh, in this debate. But I think that example that was published in the early 2000s is it's, I think his last name is is Mario. His first name is Mario Buzgolio. He's an Italian guy. I just thought it was a brilliant example. But he, but the idea is that you have mathematical, structural, explanatory 
similarity, but you have the opposite spin direction from the particle decay. It just goes in another way. So that's like a, an easy example. So the idea is generally that something in the physical case is staying the same, and I'm sorry, the physical laws are staying the same, but something else is occurring. Now, there are other types of examples too. Those are examples where we say something is metaphysically necessary even in worlds where the laws of physics are different. So here's an example of that. Like someone could say that it's metaphysically necessary that water has the capacity to be at least a liquid, vapor, and a solid. So even if the laws of physics are different, nothing's going to be water if it doesn't have mm. those phase properties. Okay, That's going in the other direction, that physical laws can change, although something has... So for us to be talking about, to be referring to water... Is if, it's a bit more controversial because you might... Is that not just conceptual modality rather than metaphysical? Okay, yes. It, it's useful if I explain the deflationary sure, approach. Sure, sure. Right, because that's the two sides of the coin. Okay. So the inflationary approach is to take the things that are physically possible and necessary, just say that's just exactly what the metaphysical... So, so again, it's an onion... Physical, metaphysical, logical. Inflation, yeah. physical to metaphysical, one-to-one, -one, right? Mm -hmm. There's no difference. Yes. Deflation is to basically take the metaphysical into the logical, right? Okay. Sorry, So now the logic is nested in metaphysics? No, no, no. no. The, the, the metaphysical correlates one-to-one. -one oh, correlates one. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, Got so, it. so now it's so... So first it was physical inflates to... Uh, logical uh, to, to metaphysical, and now logical deflates to metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's yeah, so yeah. going down, right? And so then, so in both cases, what's really happening is we're getting rid of metaphysics. It's called skepticism about metaphysical modality. Graham Priest has a really nice paper about this. Now, in this move, this other one, the deflationary one, is wherein lies the move about conceptual possibility. So there's two notions of logical possibility. One is called narrow logical possibility, and the other one is called broad logical possibility. So narrow logical possibility has to do with logical possibility that's solely determined in terms of the theorems and axioms of the system itself, right? So for example, in first-order logic, you might have the law of excluded middle. That's explicitly an axiom of the system, okay, or, or a theorem or a law of the system. Broad logical possibility means something like logical possibility in the narrow sense plus all the conceptual truths. Can you repeat that once yeah, more, plus, please? Okay. So logical, broad logical possibility means logical possibility in terms of the narrow sense of just talking about the laws of a specific system, but then you're adding to it a bunch of conceptual truths and you're mm, applying the logical mm. system to all of the conceptual truths. So a classic okay. example that was debated was like, it's a conceptual truth that bachelor equals unmarried male. Okay? So now we add that as like a theorem. Like that's, mm -hmm. so all the conceptual truths become like little theorems after we have the law of excluded middle. And, you know, something like uh, modus ponens. Then we add in, oh, here. So now this notion of logic is the kind of, of logical 
possibility and necessity is the kind that's telling us that, well, the conceptual truths are just additional pieces of information for logic to operate on, but they are in some sense a priori, right? So logic is a priori, independent of sense experience. And the conceptual truths are just these sorts of things that we added. So one conceptual truth that someone might talk about in the case of water is that water is a liquid or, or, or that's a gas. Or like so, so they might put that in there. But water is H2O. There's a question. Is that a conceptual truth? It's definitely not a priori. It's a posteriori. Yeah. Okay, so this is how we get into things. So when you want to talk about conceptual possibility, that's people could say conceptual po- P is conceptually possible if and only if P is consistent with the relevant logic that's being used and the set of concepts in question, right? So in each case, we're relativizing the modality to a kind of thing that um, like determines or adjudicates the possibility or the necessity claim, right? So physical physical laws, metaphysical, metaphysical laws, conceptual, conceptual, law, conceptual truths, and stuff like that. There's a, by the way, there's a really great paper on this issue by one of my favorite philosophers. His name is Kit Fine. He teaches at NYU. He wrote a very famous paper called The Varieties of Modality, or Varieties of, yeah, Varieties of Modality. And in that paper, he discusses a lot of these important issues in a nice way and talks about different ways in which you can talk about it. So th- this is a very important debate in, in an area called the metaphysics of modality, which is a subset of um, the philosophy of modality. But yes, okay, so like, yeah, so there's three different kinds, uh, four different kinds you can talk about. And then also, by the way, there's other ones. Like some people say, well, isn't there a notion of technological possibility? Right, right. Right? Like what's technologically possible now is not what's technologically possible in the future or what was in the past. There's So there's various specific and then there's a further debate about what then are the the basic kinds of modality. So like then we'll say there's a plurality of modalities. Uh, okay. Are any of them joint carving? Like are we all making them up in our head? Is it is is all this stuff like is it real th- these distinctions or are they artifacts of our mind? So Dane's view is very much focused on um I mean like I'll say what the, the the thing is that I think is going on, but um, uh, I don't want to be too forceful in saying like this is the only way to interpret it. Sure, I think on his view, the space of metaphysically possible worlds just is the same as the space of logically possible worlds. Metaphysics isn't really metaphysical possibility isn't really something differentiable. So he's a deflationist. Would that be called being yes. deflationary? Uh, in my terminology, it is. In the way I, I write about it, it is. But I mean, other ways of talking about it is just that he thinks that metaphysical possibility amounts to logical possibility, broad logical possibility involving the conceptual truths. And someone like me uh, or other people might think, well, metaphysical possibility has something to do with a, a, something that goes beyond concepts and what's involved in our concepts. And you use the word broad logical possibility because you're not just relegating to classical logic. No, oh, oh, that's that, that's a no, that's a good one too. Sorry, maybe I'll clean that up too. No, by saying broad logical possibility, it's whatever logical system you have in mind that could be classical or paraconsistent or intuitionistic, but you have to add something else to it, which is the conceptual truths. So broad um, doesn't mean I that see. it's not the important part. Isn't what is the base logic? It's the conjunctive claim, the claim that you don't have just a base logic. You have a, a, another 
thing, conceptual truths that you're putting together, okay. right? And so, right, right. So, right. So, um, I think Dave is a first order logic plus conceptual truths yeah. person. And someone like, you know, if Graham, Graham Priest, Priest or Franz Berto was doing this, they'd be like, well, no, it's paraconsistent logic. And then maybe we add the conceptual truths. And so there's all these different players in this area. Tim Williamson has a different view too and how it's done. But yeah, that's kind of like, um, that's that's the, sort of the the difference between those kinds of things. Now, now, one of the things that is the reason why this is done, and this is pretty much clearly the important move, is that we've always had this fundamental question of like, how do we know that something is possible? Right? Like, mm-hmm. how do I know that something is? But this is like a very interesting question because what we mean by possibility here is. Not that it's something that's actual and therefore possible, because what is actual is possible, but something that we haven't experienced and we know it's possible, right? So importantly, in these debates about consciousness, what was being claimed is that it's possible for there to be a physical duplicate of a human, particle for particle, structure and everything exactly the same but it lacks phenomenal consciousness. That's a philosophical zombie, right? That's conceivable. And because it's conceivable, that's how we get to know it. It's possible. So there's this idea that, how, because you're not experiencing any zombies in your life anytime soon, or would, if we ran into one, would we really know what to think about its internal states? So someone is saying it's possible for there to be such things and that that's significant. So how do we know it's possible? Yeah. Well, we know it's possible because uh, we can conceive it. So conceivability is an important idea that has been around in Western philosophy as a way of knowing about possibility. That's So this is why this is logic and um, metaphysical thing is this thesis is important about how you inflate or deflate because it tells a relational story to how you know. Right? It's what you're saying controversial that – uh, it's possible uh, because it's conceivable. And the reason I say that is, again, going back to Dan Dennett, I believe he he or someone, I'm sure you can imagine, you could conceive of someone yeah. who would say that it's inconceivable that they're philosophical zombies. If they were to act like us in every single way and down to the cells and so on, they would feel like us. It's just impossible for it not to. Yeah, no, this is very, I mean, so there's two things that are uh, controversial here, and you've touched on both of them, one very explicitly and the other one less explicitly. So the explicit one is whether or not the claim that zombies are conceivable is true or false, okay? And the second one is who cares if it's conceivable? Why should conceivability give us an assurance or knowledge that something is possible? Mm -hmm. Okay. So both of those... Are relevant. I particularly spent and still spend time working on the second question. I'm less concerned with whether or not zombies are conceivable. Yeah. I'm more concerned with this way in which our mind uses something like imagination, conceivability, counterfactual reasoning, intuition, deduction, theory based deduction. In order to come to know these claims, so that so the so so I have I mean, but it is absolutely controversial. And you're right, Dan Dennett would say one thing about the conceivability 
of zombies. For example, the conceivability of zombies in a very clear sense depends on how much information about the actual or the, the hypothetical zombie do I have to have to be in a position to make a judgment that I've conceived, uh, successfully conceived? Notice, like, like, so you know, there's a you know a famous you know example of um by Peter Van Inwagen about uh, purple cows. <laughs> I mean, like, if I draw a picture in my mind of a cow and paint it purple. Is that count as a conception of a purple cow? I mean, I've done none of the details about how cows could have evolved from what mm. they are, actually have the pigmentation that is purple and some. I mean, like, what is, like, if I just stick something in my head and paint it, I mean, uh, if I take yeah, a pig and that's put some wings on it and don't put it touching the ground, is that a flying, is that a conception of a, a flying pig? Right. Uh -huh. so, so this is the, this is the issue is that how does. I want to say something that's hilarious. Yeah. Many people will say, I invented that. I invented that app. Like six years ago, I had the idea for that app. Yeah, but did you think about the inner workings of that app? Did you come up with a business plan for that app? Did you hire people? It's a variation of that. It is. And also, this is the reason why it's related is because we call this issue the problem of relevant depth. So what we say is that there are ways of conceiving or imagining certain things where the depth of the imagination and conception isn't sufficient to make it the case that your conception really counts for anything, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. So I could say, you know, I, I, I had this idea for this app many years ago. Basically, people would get on and, you know, post things about their life and share pictures and things like that. Did I conceive of Facebook? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, right. So it's the relevant depth issue. Except in your case, a little bit of what's going on is the aspect of, having credit for the idea. Ah. In this case, what's happening is whether or not the depth is sufficient to epistemically justify a belief that something is possible. Should I go around believing that there are purple cows because I can paint pictures of cows in my head purple? Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Doesn't sound like that's really good evidence to me. So that's kind of the way I think about the problem in that case, yeah. Is that what's behind when some people say, look, it's possible that the laws of logic don't apply. Like, it's conceivable that they don't apply. And maybe some people say that when they've had some experiences, there are some ways you can get to experiences like this with psychedelics hmm, or meditation. That's, that's, that's a, that's a... But then the counter would be, well, how do you even know? Like, what does it even mean? It doesn't make sense. Quote, unquote, make sense. Someone else may. That's usually the intellectual's retort to anything. That doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. Well, one second. Well, can we just look at the, that, that one was cool because I like that. Um... No, I don't think you have to be, you know, backing off from this in a way of saying like you're just generally skeptical. I think that um, it's conceivable that the laws of logic don't apply to this. It's interesting because to me what I get hung up on is well, what do you mean about the word uh, apply? I mean, if it applies or doesn't apply, isn't that because you've used some logical reasoning to test whether it applies or it doesn't apply? So you're saying to me it's well, conceivable. It's ineffable. Then it's not conceivable. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a different relationship between – no, actually, let me think for a second. 
there is a relationship between inconceivability and ineffability in at least the following sense. If it's conceivable that P, then it should be effable that P. And if it's inconceivable that P, there should be a sense in which it's ineffable that P, right? Hmm. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Uh, I was just worried about the use of the word application yeah. in that, that other case. That's a, that's a little bit um, hard for me to understand. But, but I do think people do want to say things like, um, it's conceivably the case... I don't even know why they would have to say that, but they could say it's conceivably the case that in this domain of experience, logic is uh, inapplicable. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, and one of the ways to see this is with the argument about can God perform a contradiction? And some people would say... Oh, yeah, say, right, the stone yeah, paradox. Yeah. yeah. And so some people yeah. would say no because the laws of God, the laws of logic bound God. And yeah. other people would say he can. Maybe he just doesn't or she doesn't. Yeah. Or it doesn't, but it's possible. Yeah, I mean, this is usually this is usually like in that area where people say things about, can I rationally understand what God can do? So, God can make it the case that He can lift a stone that's so heavy that no one can lift it, by making it the case that He changes the laws of logic because He has the power to do that because He created us and created logic. Or people can say. All that's happening here is that logic is like that kind of language thing that mm-hmm. blocks me from understanding what is the, the total space of possibility because all I understand about possibility is limited to me by my ability to reason. Yeah, that's that's not an uncommon way of thinking. That's yeah. So can you explain the integration challenge? Oh, oh, okay. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. So integration challenge comes from Christopher Peacock in a book called Being Known in some earlier papers. And the reliability challenge comes from kind of Robert Nozick, but it can be found elsewhere too. Um, So the integration challenge is the challenge of harmonizing or integrating the metaphysics and epistemology of modality. And so the idea was that there was a problem in the philosophy of mathematics that existed in its own way in relationship to integration. And then Peacock kind of applied it nicely into the space of the philosophy of modality. So if you have a Platonistic theory of mathematics, then mathematical objects are causally isolated from us. But most theories of knowledge think that if you're knowing about something, you should have a causal connection to it in some way, either directly or indirectly. But given that these platonic objects are causally isolated, we can never come to know them. So that platonic theory of mathematical objects, along with a causal constraint on knowing, is a non-integratable theory of the philosophy of mathematics. We can't say that all knowledge requires causal contact and mathematical objects are causally inert, okay. and expect to get an integrated functioning theory of both the semantics and episto- the metaphysics, semantics, and epistemology. How is the word mathematics. integration being used here? Integration is being used in the sense of harmony, in the sense that they work, they make sense together. I see. Not in the sense of integration and calculus. It does not mean, it means that the theory of knowing makes sense in conjunction with the theory of what those objects are that they are 
So for example, one of my friends who I worked with for a long time would have argued, yeah, it's clear that what's going on here is that if you have a Platonistic theory of mathematics, you ought to say that causation in those cases isn't related to knowing. Knowing doesn't require causation in the case mm. of mathematics. It does in the case of ordinary concrete particulars in the world, such as perceptible objects, but it doesn't work in that case. Okay, so that's that harmonizes well. So now in the philosophy of modality, the claim was that how we know about possible worlds uh, ought to be kind of consistent with like what they are. Like if you if you can't tell a theory yeah. uh, of what they are, such as that we could know about them. So if you're David Lewis and you think they're like these causally isolated objects, like uh, uh, in like the, the mathematical objects in Plato's thing, except concrete particulars that are causally isolated, then how would we come to know about them? I mean, like what would be what would what would be the epistemology of them? So that's the integration challenge. Harmonize both the metaphysics, epistemology, and semantics of the domain of modality. And then the reliability challenge is, I mean, I kind of had like a a big thing about this, you know, back in around 2002 and 2004, I worked a lot on this particular one, more than the integration mm-hmm. challenge. So one version of it is kind of easy to sort of tell the story of. It's like, okay, so evolution gives us certain pressures on our ways and methods of knowing. Okay, so there's like a, a pressure, like you've got to get certain kinds of things right. If you're not able to detect edges of cliffs reliably enough, you're just going to like not be able to stop yourself and you're going to fall off the cliff. Or if you're not able to reliably detect the color mm-hmm. of a tiger, you're going to just get eaten by one, right? So these are the kinds of considerations which are sloppily sort of just thrown about in this debate. But yeah, that's roughly the idea. So then the, the thing is like, what is the modal detecting faculty in your brain? Why would we have evolved to get something right in all possible worlds when possible world variation is so extreme? Like the, I mean, I can build possible worlds in terms of different laws of logic. I can run, oh, right. Like why would there be an evolutionary pressure to get all of these things right? So the reliability challenge is to explain the way in which our minds could be reliable with respect to the acquisition of necessary truths and merely possible truths. Yeah. Truths that are possible but not actually true, and truths that are true in all possible are necessary truths. And so these two terms were used more recently by Amy Thomason to sort of argue for new theories of modality, but they separately derive from Nozick and Peacock. I see. What's a way around that? It sounds ironclad to me. Oh, sorry. So, right, right. You mean about the second one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, oh, yeah, there's an easy way around this. I mean, I, I basically wrote one of the chapters of my dissertation around this. I think it's, I think those are just wrong. It's obvious. Yeah. So, there's something in evolutionary theory called a spandrel effect. That is, when you aim to produce one thing explicitly, you have a side effect. So, it comes from the spandrels that are in these little things. And I, I think it's a famous uh, church. Right, where if you have two arches that cross each other, the intersection of those arches will create four spaces. Right. Okay. All that was being done was we were creating two arches, but we got for free this extra thing. Yes. <laughs> it's called yeah. spandrel effect. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, there is no evolutionary pressure pressure to get things right in all possible worlds, but there is an evolutionary pressure for a certain kind of thinking that can take us to the reasoning about possibility. 
So this, I think, in my way, is the insight of Timothy Williamson's view. Mm-hmm. Because he says that the cognitive capacity that's used is not imagination itself, nor conceivability itself, but is based in a reasoning capacity that is essential for human survival. Uh, it's called counterfactual reasoning or suppositional reasoning. So counterfactual reasoning is... um basically the ability to suppose something and reason from it. The classic example is if the tree hadn't been there, the rock would have ended up in the lake. That's an example from his actual book. But I mean, that's like totally relevant. Like if we couldn't reason like that, if I don't move to the left a little bit, the tiger will be close enough to jump and get me. If I move to the right, my spear trajectory will be a lot better. Like naive physics Mm -hmm. in terms of hunting and all this stuff requires counterfactual reasoning. So then the way I think I use Williamson's view to defend or respond to Nozick is to say, well, once I have counterfactual reasoning, I can reason my way to truths about metaphysical modality. And now there's a, Williamson actually offers a very rigorous mathematical proof of the ability to get modal truths within counterfactual conditionals. It's a big part of his book. Uh, but we can suppress that for a moment. Take it for me. It's the, the, the proof works. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but but the idea is that okay, uh, evolution will have given us the capacity for counterfactual reasoning, but it's implicated in everything we do: scientific reasoning, ordinary reasoning, hunting, gathering, everything. There is a relationship mathematically and provably between metaphysical modality and counterfactual uh, conditionals. Ergo, there's a pathway from those into getting that. So, bye bye. Um, you know, the challenge of. Uh, evolutionary pressures. Th- there remains a challenge about explaining why it's reliable, which is actually something I work on right now in terms of uh, my own research still in this field. I, I try to explain like how the re- reliability will be better or worse. But but the path, so so we can take the first version of the criticism to be the pathway problem. Like what is the path even to get there if they're causally inert and isolated from us? And then the other one is not about the pathway being uh, saying the pathway is present, the question is, okay, once you have a pathway, what will account for the reliability uh, so that we can be saying we're making reliable judgments about modal facts? And so that's kind of what I work on now. But yes, there is a way. But let's talk, let's make sure we're not forgetting the other things. So they're related. So the idea is that this is like the hard problem of consciousness, which I think you've heard of before, right? The, these aren't problems in the sense of like, what is two plus two? Uh, and there are problems in the sense that you must give a satisfactory theory by obeying the constraints of integration and reliability. That's uh-huh. the way that they're used. So there are many different theories. So Amy Thomason defends a modal normativist theory or modality ends up being about norms of a certain kind. Uh, other people offer, I'm an essentialist. I defend an essentialist theory in this camp. Uh, people offer like lots of different views, but they're not problems in the se- in that like how do you solve it like that. They're more like what do you have to say about the hard problem of consciousness? Otherwise, like I don't really think you've given me a theory, right? That's the kind of thing. Like you got to say something here, and some things are more satisfactory than others. I don't particularly take the reliability challenge as seriously as I take the integration challenges. I think you can uh, considerations from evolution that don't specify a specific problem beyond uh, the recognition of a spandrel effect seem to me not that valuable. Have you heard of Donald Hoffman? Yes, I know who Donald Hoffman is. I believe he talks about how our perception of the world makes it the case that it's 
no reality or something. Yes. Well, the fact that you would be mirroring reality is the probability is zero, essentially. Yes. That your perceptions would mirror reality. Does that not put a monkey wrench in the reliability challenge? Um, well, I mean, the other side of this coin is, has to do with, you know, yeah, it, it, I'm not going to share uh, his sympathies. I mean, I just have a different theory of perception, and I think that it's it's not going to be consistent with what he wants to say. And um, there are, are a lot of moving parts. So the other aspect of my research is that I work on, like I said, two things. Yeah. I think about how we know what's possible and how we know what's actual. Like mm-hmm. That's like dominantly over 25 years of my life I've worked in both of those areas. So I'm concerned with how we have knowledge of non-actual possibilities that are not given to us through perception. If I see a cup, then I know it's possible for there to be a cup there. That's an actual possibility, that actual fact that verifies a possibility fact. But what about your, you know, potential sister or brother you could have had that doesn't exist. Then I think about how we perceive the world, ordinary objects, and how that gives us knowledge of the world. And so I'm not pretty much, uh, I don't think we need to mirror the world mm-hmm. in order to, I don't, I don't think, I mean, that's not the language I would use. I'm sort of a direct realist, and a, I think perception puts us directly in contact with the objects. Like again, so that whole idea in Chomsky, if we now bring it out in perception, that's not kind of, where my sympathy lies, I don't think in language we're referring to things in our head, and I don't think in perception we're talking about representations in our brain. I just don't yeah. think that's the that's like a a confusion of a certain kind to me, a levels confusion. What's a levels confusion mean? Oh, it means that something that is uh, like a category error. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, mm, no, 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 no. It is no, 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 no. It's okay to use um, the famous example of a category mistake. Uh, from philosophy of mind to help understand what a levels can be. And in some sense, it is. So yeah, it is a category mistake in that sense, but th- there's other things that could be going on there. It's just a, it's a way of saying that what is a correct way of talking at one level doesn't really apply at another level. Category mistakes sometimes are a lot more severe than that. There's like saying, you know, if I say uh, the number 16 has parents from Missouri, uh, that's a category mistake because the parent relationship literally understood isn't a relationship that numbers have, right? So there's a relationship between that, but you're right. A levels confusion involves sometimes category mistakes. Um, so one of the things I learned in Indian philosophy mm-hmm. that is useful is that the term pratyaksha, which is a common translation in, from Sanskrit into English as perception, can be used um, both to refer to the process <laughs> that starts with certain kinds of things going on with your retina or okay. with contact with objects in your environment all the way up into consciously like seeing things. But it can also refer to the product of the process, which is like the state of perceiving the cup in front of me. And so I think sometimes in the philosophy of perception, we tacitly engage in making claims from one level to talking about things at another level, not maybe a level's mistake or confusion, but at least we're transplanting things. And like, this goes right back to the Buddhists. Like they're going to say things like, well, you know, the perceptual processing involves a lot of stuff from your mind being imputed to create your conscious perceptual experience of seeing the cup on the table. And all that perceptual processing 
is something you're imposing that isn't really in the world out there. So, you know, as far as your conscious perception is concerned, you're not tracking the world. You're not mirroring the world at all. I mean, the thing that's relating you to the world in the initial instance where your system comes into contact with the world, that might be, you know, tracking something or I guess they wouldn't use mirroring either, but it's clearly not um, mirroring it at the level of conceptual imputation, right? So that's uh, I think so. I don't know exactly where Hoffman lies on these issues, but there's a family of people in neuroscience and in the philosophy of perception who like to think of us as basically wet prediction machines. Like that's a term I like to use for this. So Anil okay. Seth is one kind of person who thinks of us as wet prediction yeah, yeah, machines yeah. for a large part. Yeah. I think Hoffman is a little bit in that camp. I think Friston is a little bit in that camp. I mean, at least they talk that way, and I don't know how much they want to load beyond that. I'm not a wet prediction theorist. I don't really think uh-huh. that's the right way to understand uh, the epistemological status of conscious perceptual states. <clears throat> it might be a way of talking about some components <clears throat> of modeling uh, perceptual processing, but I'm not sure I see it as the right way to think about uh, conscious uh the epistemology of conscious perceptual states in which we make various claims about the external world in order to justify beliefs and engage in argumentation with one another about the structure of reality. I'm having a difficult time. Help me boil this down to an argument of against Don or against Daniil. Yeah, sure. I can. I think, I think, but first of all, I think maybe the reason why we're having a hard time is I haven't given an argument about agreeing or disagreeing with any of these people. My position is not, I haven't laid anything out. What I've, basically said is that I think there is a way of scientifically investigating the perceptual process from V1 to V8, if you want to talk in terms of those things, uh-huh. or you know, retinal stimulation uh, up into the application of beliefs and concepts uh, in the mind, or what the Indians would just talk about, perceptual contact, versus, uh, or indeterminate perception versus, I'm actually writing a paper on this, indeterminate versus determinate, or what's called nirvikalpaka pratyaksha versus samikalpaka pratyaksha, two different types of perception, one with concepts and one without concepts, or what analytic philosophers call non-conceptual versus conceptual content in perception. Uh, Yes, I think that, I think there's a very important way in which we must look at the evidence about the brain and how it works in perceptual processing. What I was resisting was the idea that we can automatically transfer evidence we have about or theories about perceptual processing to say that when we have the conscious experience of seeing a cup on a table, it just is somehow nothing over and above or has no value epistemologically Uh. Over and above what is going on with the perceptual uh, um, thing. So, so for example, I would resist the claim that there are no cups out there in the world that we're justified in believing in, based on the fact that all our system does is predict, based on our prior experience with objects, what would be the most likely thing in our visual field, and feeds that up to our conscious perception. So I only see a cup because the template in my perceptual stream is uh, prior exposure has Bayesianly codified it, however you want to say this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for, um, for uh, you know, this thing coming up. I don't, um, I don't think that that's uh, a good 
inference right. from one to the other. And I, I will admit, though, that there is a lot of pressure to to see it that way. There is a lot. Yeah, of, explain that, please. This is super interesting. There's a lot of pressure to explain it that way because we have come to understand the a certain model of our mind as engaging in the world as kind of like it's it's it's, it's odd actually in some ways maybe this way of sharing it with you will be insightful and valuable like we want to draw this distinction between us and like large language models for example mm, okay but, but 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 when we talk this way that we're prediction machines i seem i feel like we're like like is the big difference that basically unlike large language models that may be doing things more on the basis of syntactic manipulation versus semantic understanding we're, we're, we're the same with prediction machines in terms of you know doing something like that so i don't see that that analogy um really works on the one hand it makes us much more closer to the thing that everyone keeps on saying we're fundamentally different from and at the other time, it seems like we're forcing an inference from facts about how a perceptual process works when it's computationally modeled in a certain way to what is the value of the experience. And it's not like there aren't any debates about whether or not these sorts of models are the best way to think about it. So there's like inactivist theories of perception. There's uh, indirect realist theories of perception. There's realist representationalist theories. There's a lot of different mm -hmm. things out there on the model. And so I, I think that actually the, the the scientific research is very valuable and probably one of the most important things as a philosopher you have to pay attention to. I'm heavily influenced by Tyler Burge's work, who has spent a lot of time making sense of the neuroscientific data and perception to give an account of um, perception. But I'm not sure like the story really ends there for me. Like I think there's there's more of a story that you have to tell. And so I, I tend to want to go in that direction as well. What are your thoughts on free will? Um, what are my thoughts on free will? Do you feel well, like there's pressure to go in the direction of there is no free will? No, it's actually the opposite. I had this really interesting dinner with Richard Swinburne, one of the leading philosophers of religion in the world. I had a dinner with him and my wife in um, Romania. And, uh, we ended up talking about free will. And I just told him, like, I never got into the problem of free will because I, I think I just was full-blown committed to the idea that uh, free will and determinism are incompatible uh, and we have free will. Uh, otherwise, I can't make sense of... Uh, yeah, I have... I, maybe I'll repeat the same sort of thing I said to him that I say to all my students and everybody when they ask me about free will. There's two things about free will I care about. One is the thing I'm about to say... And the other is the relationship, again, between artificial systems and freedom in artificial systems and free will in sure. us. So I'm very interested in those. So here's the first one. I think speaking a language and communicating with someone is an agential activity involving free will at some level and degree of freedom in the choice of constructing sentences and embedding them with meaning to communicate them. So that if we don't have free will. I'm not talking right now. No, there's nothing. Go it's a parrot. There's nothing going on there, right? Right. So parrots are merely under one understanding, simply repeating sounds that they've heard without any sort of choice about it in terms of the free 
construction of meaning. So if I don't have, so one way to make it clearly is some people think about free will only in relationship to bodily action. I think about free will in terms of its relationship to mental action. Speaking is a right. mental act. So if I don't have free will, I don't have any mental actions. If I don't have any mental actions, then I'm not speaking because speaking is a mental action. That's the first point I care about in terms of free wills. I, I bring this up a lot. Um, so, um, yeah. Then the other one that I bring up is that I'm not so sure that there is some kind of free will that we have that machines are incapable of having because they're so-called, quote-unquote, programmed in some way. And in fact, I just saw this wonderful episode of Star Trek. It was in the Voyager uh-huh. uh, stuff, uh, where they, in fact, had a discussion between the doctor who is a hologram and one of his assistants. And the doctor said to the assistant, um, well, I don't choose anything when I give a diagnosis. I've been programmed to give the diagnosis based on these vast amounts of information that I've been trained on. Like this is, this is the hologram who's uh-huh. a doctor talking to their assistant about a patient that they have and expressing himself that he doesn't have choice or free will in diagnosis and that he simply takes the data that's been given to him, runs it through all the data he has known before or been given, and then spits out a diagnosis. And then she says this brilliant response. She says, well, what's the difference? I mean, I went to medical school and I studied all this stuff. And basically, when they give me the information, I try to look at all the information in my head. And maybe the difference is that it's more easily accessible to you because your memory is so free-flowing with all its information and mine is forgetful. But but isn't the fundamental nature... I thought this was one of the most insightful philosophical episodes of Star Trek because of you know how this was expressed. And so I thought... Yes, I do worry about that issue too, about the degree to which we really can run the Charles Babbage, Lady Lovelace objection against machines' creativity because it's all programmed in, as the initial objection goes, the Turing responds to in his famous paper. Um, yeah, so those are my two thoughts about free will, but I'm not a free will expert, and I know there are many people who talk about in terms of quantum indeterminacy and things like that. I probably should yeah. withhold about talking about sure. Yeah. Is there something about free will that makes it sufficient for something to have moral standing? Oh, uh, I don't think it's a necessary condition. I think it could be in a, a condition. So yes, I think, yeah. So maybe like, maybe this is something we can get from free will into the other thing that we kind of wanted to talk moral about. Moral standing is, and moral grounding. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just sort of paint the picture in a Please. sort of synaptically what the difference is between. This is something I actually do have something to say. So <laughs> I, I like I have a positive thesis more than just picking apart things I don't like and writing papers. Like I, I definitely have strong feelings here. Uh, so I don't think... Well, you're so well articulated that when you oh. say that you don't have something to say, it's leagues beyond what most people say when they say, I have something to say. Oh, okay. So your threshold is so above. Yeah, maybe my threshold is too high then. Uh, no, so yeah, I think my view is that I don't, yeah, I don't think that uh, consciousness is the grounding property. So on my view and my research right now, I think that there's another property that's important. It is not free will though either. It's not free will. 
So we might say that free will is a sufficient condition for having moral status, but not a necessary condition. Um, but I think the property I'm going to talk about now is more basic, and it's the one that can explain what's going on with free will, yes. maybe, when I explain the whole theory. So the property I think is relevant is computational intelligence that's goal-directed and tied to preferential states. So this goes back to the example of the creature in the water who can detect the magnetic north and south and tries to get oxygen-rich water by going in one yeah, direction. Yeah, and you call that cognition. And to me, when I think of I, cognition... I used to call it cognitive suffering. You're yeah, right. yeah, sorry. Sir. When I hear the term cognitive, I think of a nervous system, and mm-hmm. I assume that that's not what you mean. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that. Yeah, no, I don't. So, so again, let me explain here what's going on. So I think that there are lots of different... Um, like it's always trying to find this word, and I never can find it, like the word that properly applies to biological and non-biological creatures. I think sometimes I just want to call them natural versus artificial systems. I mean, a, a sure. human is a natural system, and a bug is a natural system, and an AI is an artificial, but I don't really like that. Anyway, you get the point. There's like these two different kinds of systems, at least, and there are many different versions of each kind. So many different artificial systems and large language models are different than, you know, domain-specific chess-playing games and the different types of creatures, right? Yes. So the thing that I think makes something have, that gives something moral standing is that there is a kind of intelligence in it that involves computations. And that intelligence is goal-directed and the system has preferential states, right? So the little creature I was talking about prefers to be an oxygen-rich environment opposed to the oxygen-low environment, right? It has a detector for getting itself to that thing. It's not the greatest detector, but it does its job. Mm-hmm. And I can mess with it by putting a magnet over it and then killing it. But the thing is, it, 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 it's, it's, it's in that, that detector is giving it information that that has to be computed then to move that it goes in a certain direction, Right. Now, I don't know if the thing has phenomenal consciousness. I don't know if there's something it's like for the thing to detect <laughs> north yeah. or south with that, that thing. But, but, but I that know doesn't one matter. Thing. Yeah, for me it does. Because the thing is it definitely prefers to be in the oxygen-rich environment over the low oxygen. Yeah. And so that should be enough to say of that. Now, look, let's go further so you understand. Like plants have computational intelligence that's goal-directed that involves preferences. Uh, Lots of animals and insects above them have this. Preferences are different than tendencies. Is that correct? Mm, That's a good question. That's a good philosophical question because sometimes people say that tendencies are, this is related to the philosophical, the free will thing. Tendencies are a little bit more automatic and preferences require rational endorsement. Yeah. I don't really think I need to use preference in that way. This has a tendency to just want to stay. At the minimal position. Yeah. So I if it. I, I raise it, it, am I causing yeah. harm to it? <laughs> this doesn't have moral standing because it doesn't meet the artificial life form. Yeah, I get what you're, I get what I get. I, this is a good example. I get clearly exactly like how it's challenging. Um, I don't know. I'm not trying to challenge. I'm just. No, no, it, no. Well, I mean, it's the right kind of corner yes, case to yeah, think about is what I mean. Yeah. I mean, in that sense. Yeah, I definitely think the answer is no, that that thing does actually <laughs> okay. does not satisfy Good. my definitions. Right. But I think the reason why it doesn't satisfy my conditions has to do with the fact that 
though none of the things that are going on with it have to do with anything internal to the thing. I mean, obviously it's gravity and mass alone that account for the tendency. So the use of the word tendency is eliminable completely. Uh, we don't. There's no tendency at all within the object. There's just the a- application of the laws of physics to things that have mass. Right? Yeah. That's, there's, there's nothing like it, it'd be one thing if it could had a, a tendency or could resist. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now Raymond yeah. Smullyan. You must know Raymond Smullyan. I don't know him personally, but I definitely know who he is. Yeah, the logician. Yeah. 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 He had this dialogue of man with God and free will. It was man arguing with God saying, hey, why did you give me this free will? It's this huge imposition. You did this to me. Like, take away my free will. Then God's like, okay, if I do Mm -hmm. that, then you're going to commit, maybe you'll commit horrible crimes. Do you still want me to take it away? And the man's like, no, because I'll be culpable now if I do that. But but you did this to me. Anyway, the conversation then comes down to, after lines and lines and lines, God says, you think of determinism as somehow the world is so strong that it just determines your actions. Mm-hmm. But what's the difference between you and the world? What's the difference between you and law? So if we were to take that argument, we could say, yeah. yeah, okay, well, look, it's just law of gravity, the law of gravity or some minimization principle. Yeah, but what's the difference? Like, where's the border between this and the minimization of action? So, yeah, so there is... A, I don't know if this is well formulated. No, no, this is relevant. No, it is, because it's about the boundary of what constitutes the system and the creature. So, Actually, I read this dialogue by Raymond Smullyan on this channel, along with commentary, link in the description. If you're someone who has this, uh, it, wait, there's multiple levels to get at this, um, and I do think it's completely relevant, but sure. I just want to get into it from at least two different levels. So I guess here in this debate, I'm really just concerned with a practical question. I'm not being very philosophical. And I so I'm, I'm inclined to say that, that, that this is a metaphysical question about what makes something an independent entity such that we can ascribe moral standing to it and why is this relevant you did it in terms of like this way of talking about the imposition and the boundaries but there's another way of blowing apart the whole debate about moral standing if you're a buddhist and you believe in relational metaphysics and you think everything is related to everything else then what does it mean to talk about any one given thing having moral standing and something else not having moral standing given that everything's related to everything else right like oftentimes when I go to these Western debates about moral standing, uh, I have to point out to people because I've studied non-Western philosophy that pretty much nothing they're talking about makes any sense in relational metaphysics. I mean, if everything is related to everything else, then if any one thing has a moral standing, everything else has moral standing, maybe a diluted small drop yeah, of it. Yeah, okay, but I different mean, degrees. It, right, right. So this is the boundary question now dressed up in the moral status thing. So I'm assuming... Because in order to debate these people, you have to assume that some form of uh, attribution of intrinsic morality, uh, moral worth to something makes sense. So the example I was given is that, yeah, you know, the pig in the trough is related to a whole bunch of other things. It's got little micro gut uh, organisms too. But look, it seems pretty clear that we can talk about the suffering of the pig and it has some moral standing and some moral worth. We can kind of cut it away a little bit. And our cutting away allows us to um, discuss it in this way. And so I think that's I think that's that's wrong. So I think in order to play this game, we have to table the obvious objection 
Mm-hmm. They may even turn out to be the fundamental truth because here I think relational metaphysics has a lot going for it and the Buddhists have cornered the market on some of this. Um, I'm willing to I'm willing to take that as an objection. But in terms of the way the debate's proceeding, my main goal is to show that sentience defined in terms of affective consciousness or phenomenal consciousness, depending on whether you're a narrow or broad theorist, is just not really the grounding property. So this part of my view is important for me to pick out. Yeah, so I distinguish between what's called a grounding property and a grading property. So a grounding property says what it is in virtue of that some system, biological or not, has moral standing in the first place. A grading property says how do you grade it relative to other things that have moral standing? So there are two views here. Okay. If X and Y both have moral standing – then they have equal moral standing because there is no notion of degrees of moral status increasing and decreasing. Number two, if X and Y have moral standing, then it could be the case that X has greater than Y or Y has greater than X. That's the grading view. Mm -hmm. So the grounding property for me has nothing to do with uh, consciousness at all. It has to do with computational intelligence that's goal-directed and tied to uh, preferential states that are objectively measurable in terms of the survival of the organism or system, whatever you want to say. Uh, And so now the grading properties, this will get you back to free will, by the way, are properties like, well, above having this computational intelligence, does that have phenomenal consciousness? Does that have affective consciousness? Does that have free will, long-term rational planning? Does that have emotional states? In addition, which one of those does it have as a collective cluster? Like, does it just have emotional states and access consciousness, but no phenomenal consciousness? Does it have some degree of free will tied to its phenomenal consciousness, but not a lot of uh, free will? Does it have low phenomenal consciousness, but something else on a high thing? So it's called a cluster view. So the view is that grounding is computational intelligence, goal-directed, tied to preferential states. And then grading is done in terms of clusters. So every system will instantiate some cluster above the computational intelligence. And those clusters then are metricized against each other such that uh, having one cluster puts you at one level of moral standing, having another cluster puts you at another level of moral standing, and so there's a gradation. So it can be the case that artificial intelligence is much more intelligent than us and has a capacity for emotions mm-hmm. on my view as well, but because they lack some other thing that we have, it turns out that our cluster marks us as having a higher moral standing than their moral standing. It could also turn out that some large language models have greater moral standing than some insects, <laughs> even though those insects are conscious. Or, you know, lobsters, for example, may have the marking properties for affective consciousness, the ability to feel pain, but yeah. no large language model can. It'll still be the case on my view that we can metricize them because of the cluster they instantiate. Maybe some kind of creatures have a high degree of free will because they're biological, and some uh, machines have a low degree of free will. So, but but those same creatures can't do certain other. So you see the idea. So the idea yes. of grounding is computational intelligence, not consciousness. So I disagree with all sentience theorists. And then grading is done in terms of clusters. And each cluster contains at least two other properties, and those clusters then are weighted against each other, and they typically involve emotionality, affect, 
the feeling of phenomenal consciousness, rational planet. Yeah, that's 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 the general structure that I've been working on for two years, something like that. Anand, what motivates you to think about the subjects of morality and possibilities? So there are several possibilities of what you could be interested in, hmm. in the realm of math, logic, philosophy, language. And this is a personal story that might, I think, answer the question, but also be quite revealing in a way that might trip you out a little bit. Um, I, was, I became interested in, in studying about how we know about what's possible really early on, like in 1990, um, I don't know, 1996 when I was in undergrad. And um, I, it kind of came to me as just like this problem that Barclay, you know, the famous, you know, can you conceive of a tree unconceived by anyone? That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a modal argument, actually, based mm. on conceivability. And so I was like, you know, modern philosophy class, so that was really cool and uh, an interesting idea. And it sounded like some problem, and I was just fascinated by it. And then I worked on it for a long time, so I was trying to really, really understand like all this stuff. It was only like 10 years ago or maybe 12 years ago that I realized that I have aphantasia. Uh, same with Dan Dennett and Yosha Bach. Yeah, so aphantasia uh, is, you know, basically, in some sense, and it applies to me, is like very low mental imagery for, uh, you know, imagination and uh -huh. states of mind in that sense. And Although I, I recently must say I've been eating a lot of cheese in England, and I, sometimes my mental imagery pops right back. Oh, great. So I don't know about that. I don't know and about also that. also no cheese. internal voice, or is that you yeah. do have one? Yeah? No, no. I no, see. No, that's Interesting. Right. Yeah. So then I realized, like, wow it does make sense in some weird twisted way why I was so interested in these theories of how imagination gives us knowledge of possibility. Because a lot of them, except for Dave's, thought about the way in which we know about possibility through imagination through a pictorial theory of imagination. And I must have been perplexed as a child how that could make any sense. Because I was like, I don't know if I'm having any picture of a pig with wings what are you talking about a purple cow in my i don't know what nothing is going on how could this theory possibly dave was one of the main people to distinguish between objectual imagination and propositional imagination or objectual conceiving and propositional conceiving and he has i realized several that distinctions that was, oh he has a lot of good distinctions great philosopher and so i i think that distinction that when i saw it i became fascinated with what it could do because even though i didn't know i had some condition it turned out that actually that explained like sort of like I was digging for like, how would I be someone who could understand possibility if I don't have this pictorial imagination? So I think the motivation for that historically and direct came. The other one though is a little bit different. Sorry, it's a lot different. And the reason why it's a lot different is because some of what motivated me to start thinking about this problem about machine emotions and moral grounding was the sense that we were not thinking critically. So I started hearing people talk. I live in Silicon Valley, hmm. in San Francisco, and I would listen to people on podcasts and you know discussion groups. And it, the height of the uh, amount of um, sort of like uh, not arrogance or negligence to think clearly about what the claims they were making started to irk me a bit that I started to just in my free time away from – my main philosophy and other things, I started to think about this moral grounding problem. And then I realized like that there was a, a gaping hole in the claim that machines can't have emotions and that they can't have any moral status because they're not conscious. 
uh, as I did more and more work. And then recently I've discovered that, you know, there are other people actually who are working on this problem who, who, who also think the same thing I think. I just didn't know about them. So I've recently been in contact with Herman Capellan, who's writing a new book on the topic of uh, agency and AI. And he and I share a lot of the same views about whether or not AI can have emotions and maybe even like about how they have moral standing. So that sort of is how I got into that. I mean, I have a longstanding interest in the philosophy of economics as it relates to moral philosophy, but that's a different thing. This particular interest came just from kind of being tired of hearing people talk. And actually quite knowledgeable theorists in the AI research community were making these claims. Mm-hmm. And I and I just found myself thinking like, this just can't, you can't be saying so quickly that they can't have emotions because they can't feel. That's a naive view of the philosophy of emotions, which has been going on across multiple cultures for over 2,000 yes. years. Like, what do you, why would you possibly assert that unless you arrogantly assumed that, that there's only one theory of emotions and only one way to talk about it's like everything is about feeling and everything's about phenomenal consciousness. There's nothing else to talk about here. And so, because they're made of silicon and silicon things can't realize these states, there's nothing more to talk. And I just became like <laughs> flabbergasted by the, the, like, I'm not even sure I believe completely that machines can have emotions, but I have a really good argument that can show exactly a pathway to it. You don't see it so flippantly dismissed. I don't think we should be flippantly dismissing it. I don't think we should be. Yeah, I don't think that's good. That's bad critical thinking when we're constructing and building something that potentially has massive ramifications in our everyday lives, as is already seen by what they can do. Well, when the machines take over, you're going to be on their good side. That's for sure. Maybe they'll be like, oh, that on and by the guys like the civil rights. He was guy. rooting for us. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I'm theoretically thinking it through. But yes, there is something to it. No, that's basically, yeah, those are the two sides of those two coins. Man, we touched on consciousness, we touched on AI, morality, free will, physics, math, God. Indian philosophy, Western philosophy, modality. This is every topic on the Theories of Everything channel in one podcast. Did I do Did I do a Theory of Everything talk? Did I actually talk about almost yeah. everything? I did. You did a toe podcast without actually explicating a toe. So that's oh. the first. Oh, that's good. That's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that thing is above my pay grade. I don't think I'm going to ever get there. I'm sort of like in the theory of everything by touching on everything. I'm a different toe. Yeah. I'm not a theory of everything. I'm a touch on everything. Aha, uh-huh. great, great. And yeah. next time we can talk about constructor theory. I know you're going to delve oh, yeah. into that. Constru- yeah, I've been reading about that. We'll do some constructor theory next time. Yeah, yeah. And just for the audience, the reason is that you study modalities and counterfactuals. So possibilities, yeah. impossibilities necessary. Yeah, the, the other one you're going to like is in the future – we should talk about this theory that uh, has been floated around recently that back when I was in grad school in the 90s, people kind of knew about this, but they didn't really work on it. And I don't know why, but now it's more available. And that's the idea that the philosophy of physics mm-hmm. that is closely related to actual physics in terms of working is just the philosophy of modality. Oh, it's okay. View. So Alistair Wilson, I think, has written the most recent book sort of articulating this. But it was something we kind of already kind of thought about, like the many worlds interpretation in terms of looking at um, possible world semantics. Uh, yeah. Way of, yeah. Like it was so next time we can probably try and like work through some of that. Yep. And I think you'll find that that's actually probably in some way related to the constructor theory stuff. Yeah. When I heard that, if you didn't attach the name Alistair to it, I wouldn't have thought it was that person. I would have thought it was Kiara Marletto. 
Oh, I don't know that person. Kiara Marletto is the founder or developer of constructor theory along with David Deutsch. Oh, oh, right. So I'm not mentioning constructor theory. I'm mentioning the theory of philosophy of modality that yeah. could be related right. to the idea that philosophy of physics and philosophy of modality are very closely, intimately related in that both of them are trying to tell us something about possibility uh, in, in a very important way. Yeah. Yes, they are related to constructor theory heavily. Here's something that I was thinking about. So in modal logic, it looks to me like there's so much symbol manipulation. Like there's these squares and P's and and there's something called Loeb's theorem or Lubb's theorem. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the proof for Lubb's theorem or Loeb's theorem, it's quite contrived. I don't have an intuition for it. I can follow it with the symbols. Like, okay, these are the rules. And it seemed to me like modal logic and orthodoxastic logic is done in a different way than regular math. And I wanted to know if my perception is correct as an outsider. Mm-hmm. So regular math is done where you walk and you think about subjects and you relate them. Then you have some insight. You go back to the blackboard and you try and find the words to put to the ideas and see if it matches. Mm -hmm. The words meaning the symbols, sorry. Now in modal logic, it looks like category theory to me, where there's it's the opposite. It's the symbol pushing. And then at the end, then you're like, okay, now what does this actually mean? Okay, now is that perception correct or no? Okay, so there are, it, it could become more complicated than it needs to be, but I'm going to do the version that's very straightforward given the way you describe this. Mm-hmm. But you Your understand what I'm is, saying. Oh, I, I understand yeah, something that is extremely relevant here that studied. It's the difference between proof theory and model theory. That's the difference, as I understand, between. So sure. uh, I don't think, so the, the difference between how I'll articulate is that there is nothing. Um, that says I have to think when I'm doing stuff in modal logic, proof theoretically versus... So let me explain what that means. Proof theoretically means I'm thinking about more or less proofs and symbol manipulation. I don't care what these things, symbols on the board means. They're just, I'm moving around boxes and squares and diamonds, Mm -hmm. boxes and diamonds and parentheses based on rules given in the axiom system, if I'm in an S4 modal logic system, I have transitivity. If I'm in a B system, you know, I'll have symmetry. And if I, I won't have transitivity, and I'm in an S5, I'll have the Euclidean sure. property. And these are the rules. Um, uh, and model theory, I'm thinking about something more semantic, more meaning-related, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can approach doing my logic in these different ways. And different theorists in the history of the philosophy of logic, have preferred one of these over the other. They have preferred to be proof-theoretic people as opposed to model-theoretic people, or they've proved to see, or they've seen a value in each of them. Um, right, so I definitely think that's correct. But what I don't think is a correct perception is like, like as if, like I didn't, like I wouldn't say like there's some way in which you're moving around these symbols and then you're forced to ask only at the end, what does this mean? There is a way in which when you started by saying modal logic and doxastic logic, um, I did understand this claim, so let me clarify that. Um, like I can follow a system, S5, as it relates to proving things, and I can do proofs, and then I can ask myself at the end, if the box means 
metaphysical modality, what have we shown? If the box means no and the diamond means believe, then what have we shown? Because boxes and diamonds, I mean, I guess I I learned this a little bit, the language I use is called like, there's like an algebra, like there's Mm -hmm. an algebra of how to move these things around. But then I can take the algebra and I can uh, interpret it. Like there's an operator algebra, like how can I use the box and what can I do? And then there's what can the box mean? Like, so for example, in deontic logic, we don't always use boxes and diamonds. We use like the letter O, capital letter O for obligation and another letter for permissible. But uh, but deontic logic is about the modality concerning should and should not. It's about the moral. It's not Mm -hmm. about the metaphysically Mm -hmm. modal. So alethic modality and doxastic is about belief, knowledge, doxastic states. Um, So in general, we have this idea that there are certain theorems that a doxastic logic will satisfy, while uh, a modal logic is about metaphysical, and I, for example, satisfy something else, and deontic logic. And so I typically use the word uh, alethic modality to signify the kinds of things that I'm talking about. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say that other thing you said about, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe unless there's something about category theory, I don't really know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But at least in terms of my studying of modal logic, there's nothing that says I have to, like, I can start my proof and say, oh, Box P means it's necessary that P and diamond P means it's possible to P. And I can work through the whole proof and think about it that way. And in fact, I might even have more insights about how to think about proving it based on having it mean something as opposed to just figuring out how to do it uh, with symbols. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my the simple way of me understanding what's going on there. And so I wouldn't say like there's some difference with the oh, maybe the way you're categorizing the difference between how you do certain things in mathematics. And how you do certain things in logic is that there's a level of abstraction that's a little bit more removed in the logic case. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think that actually might be accurate because the domain of what you're talking about. So when you're talking about logic in a lot of ways, in terms of certain things, you're talking about rules of logic, which basically, I'll give you the name. It's called the, the fun conception of logic. Unfortunately, the word fun probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Mm-hmm. But logic isn't fun for a lot of people. The fun conception of logic means that logic is formal, universal, and topic neutral. Okay, It's a way of thinking about what logical truths are about. So A or not A is fun because it's formal, applies to everything, universal, and topic neutral. It's neutral about what topic it is. The fun conception of logic is that level of abstraction back that might be something that um, you don't find in a lot of air. Like, you know, topology is probably about spaces of some kind and why, you know, whatever. I'm not a mathematician, but you get the idea. And this is a little bit higher up and abstract. However, I will say this, although I was taught and trained under the view that their logic is fun in this sense, yes. I don't agree with that view at all. I'm more in line with the kind of views that Timothy Williamson has argued where logic clearly is making substantively important claims about how what's going on. It does have some infection hmm. into the things. The fact that the symbols of the system have a property of being permutation invariant over various domains, this permutation invariance isn't really making it, it fun. So yes, so that's a that's a big topic in philosophy of logic. But, but yes, there's the way in which you're saying it could be different because of how you think 
about what you're doing and what you're operating with in terms of having a level of abstraction, I mean, that that can be understood this way. So I have another large question that I'll just say, and if you could say it shortly, yeah, then state your answer shortly, but if not, we'll save it for the next time. Is there a view of both deflationary and inflationary? So that is that physics is equivalent to metaphysics, which is equivalent to logic. Oh. So Max Tegmark maybe says the logic and math, sorry, physics and math are the same. Same with Wolfram, maybe. Right, I got it. So so is there someone who's saying, no, not that not, not, not as high as I understand the space of how this is debated that that they are one in the same, and nor nor would I be that much uh, inclined to think that what Max mm-hmm. and Stephen are saying is directly related to, for example, what David, I, Sidney Shoemaker, and like Brian Ellis are talking about because it's 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 not about a generic wider notion of mathematics it's very specified to a certain understanding of logical systems the notion of conceptual truth the notion of what is it trying to get at when we say metaphysical modality and kripke's naming and necessity mm-hmm. and what actually makes sense so the, the the collapse paper by graham priest where he argues for skepticism about the reality of metaphysical modality is kind of like a really good place to look to see like what are the kinds of ways in which people push back on this sort of idea that metaphysical modality cards a joint in the space of possible worlds that's distinct from logic I see. and physics. But but there is there there is a relationship of people wanting to say this other thing, which you might have wanted to say, where they're saying there's two ways of looking at it, right? So if I look at it one way, I can see the physical possibilities just are the metaphysical possibilities. And if I switch my orientation, I can see that they're just the logical possibilities. That hasn't really been developed because it hasn't been relevant in the debates so far. But, I mean, if someone wanted to go anti-realist and say that really whether something turns out to be physically possible or metaphysically is all relative to the orientation or the framework we put upon it, uh, that's an anti-realism that they could go for. I'm not that kind of anti-realist. But, yeah, that would be a way to do it. Last question, Docs asked a question. If you believe P, do you then believe that you believe P? Oh, no. No, I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, definitely not. Because, 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 uh, and that's an important principle that I think reveals a lot. And it's very useful that you ask that specific version of the S4 iteration principle, because that doesn't make sense iteratively at all. So now, so the reason why I don't like that principle is for two reasons, basically, as applied to belief. The S4 yeah. axiom is applied to belief. Is because if you believe that P, it might be the case that the requirements for belief have never been exercised such as to generate that you believe that you believe that P. Right? So it's the first thing. Like, if I believe that water is wet, what does it take to generate the belief that I believe that waters reflect. Do I just still think about water being wet and whether I believe that? Mm-hmm. Or do I have to think about whether or not I believe that water is wet? It seems like I have to embed the first order claim and I don't know what the generation conditions are or that we often enough do that. So it could be because I believe that P, but I just never bothered to reflect on whether I believe as opposed to doubt that I believe that P. So there's an interesting argument to be had there, which makes me resist wanting to endorse it. But more importantly... As I, I as I argued, uh, as I as I endorsed my professor's view when I was an undergrad, 
I just don't think iteratively it makes sense. I'm very much against the idea that it makes sense that uh, there's something going on when I say that I believe that I believe that I believe that I believe mm-hmm. in P. Mm-hmm. I actually had this argument and debate with Timothy Williamson one time where we were talking, and he's like, "Yeah, Alan, doesn't it iterate? Isn't there a, like it's a, you know, an obvious sense in which we can say that it iterates uh, up to that many?" And I was like, "I don't think it makes any sense. I think it makes sense to say you believe the P." It maybe even makes sense to say you believe that you believe the P. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the third one, I'm thinking everything after that just collapses down to <laughs> the, the, the the first one. And so there's this idea also that in S4 modal logics, iteration collapses, but it seems to me like that cuts in the other way because believing that you believe the P does seem to be substantially different than believing that you P. Uh, believing. Uh, yes, I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. So 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 it, it's a nice one. I think it's a good object lesson when we're teaching how modal operate the operator algebra of boxes and diamonds can be interpreted differently to get different yeah. results. Because look, there's a, the famous T axiom says box P, then P. If you interpret box to be belief, that's clearly false. If you believe yes. that P it doesn't yes. follow that P yes. is true. But if you interpret box to be necessity, well, if it's necessary that P, then P is true. That seems like analytically and obviously true. Yeah. So your lesson is an extremely important one because it teaches people to realize that unless you have an op, a model of an understanding of what the boxes are, you're going to get different theorems that are perfect. Uh-huh. That's right. That makes perfect sense. Yep. Speaking of believing in P, I haven't used the washroom in a while. So okay, <laughs> got to get going. And also, I think that the BP implies BBP is central to the debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. I think that's Wait, so what they're... The Jordan Peter. So if, if you believe theme. P, then you believe that you believe P. Oh, BBP, then the, the, BP they're going implies off. BBP. Oh, sure. They are. That's a, I, I, I think that's false. As far as my understanding is, Sam Harris says, yes, that's obvious. And Peterson says, no, that's not obvious. That's false. Like, I, no, like Wait a minute. Sam Harris says that BP... No, 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 no. BP, this the, is my inference from their debate. Oh, oh. yeah, I don't. I don't. All right, all right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and even actually, uh, yeah, we can do the other one. If you believe that you believe that P, do you believe that P? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe yes, that, exactly. One's, exactly. That, that one seems a little bit more like I could step my foot into it, although I still think there could be issues about yeah, the the, the, right. the release from the belief to the belief that P. But if you believe that P, you believe that you believe that P, man, that's probably a person's dissertation, in my opinion, if it hasn't already been written. All right. And then it was so much fun. Four hours. Thank you. Four hours. That's... Like it went by like hey, man, this. You ask great questions. You know what you're doing, man. It's a fun time. What can I say? Thank you. And you give great right. answers. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> take lot, care. Man. All right, the episode is now concluded. If you like this episode, I encourage you to check out the Lawrence Krauss episode on cloud entities, what it takes to live forever. Physically speaking, it's a Dysonian thought experiment about can we, in principle, live forever despite the heat death of the universe. It's the most technical interview Krauss has ever done. That's what he said on air. And this is a huge compliment considering he's done over 400 interviews. There's also the Yosha Bach and Ben Gortzel podcast. That one's on AI consciousness and AGI timelines. And of course, there's part one with Anand Vaidya, where he gives his talk on moving beyond non-dualism and integrating Indian modes of thought, as well as concepts from the Vedic tradition into the AI slash consciousness conversation. Thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. 
You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in Theories of Everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash kurtjimungle and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. 